Anchor FM is one of the best ways to make and distribute your podcasts. Their online creative tools can allow you to make your podcasts from home and on the go. Anchor will also help you get your podcast sponsored with no minimum listenership and help you make money while doing your podcast. And distribution is the easiest thing ever. I've used many different distribution sites. Anchor so far has been the best. And they can get you on every major distribution site out there. They can take your RSS feed, whether you're creating a new one or if you're just moving a show from another platform, sign up for Anchor at anchor.fm now. And when you get there, Make sure you pay attention to everything they tell you to do, and they'll help make your podcast great and help make you some money. Again, head on over to Anchor.fm now. Welcome, everyone, to the Wide Men Radio Network Wrestling Special. This is wrestling yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And what I mean by that is we're going to be talking about wrestling from different eras of time. We're going to talk about wrestling from yesteryear. We're going to talk about current wrestling products. And we're also going to talk about what we think the future holds for professional wrestling. And joining me, as always, is my awesome co-host, the man... From the Great White North, the one and only Tim Dombroma. Bonjour, Nate. You speaking French now? Uh, Parlez-vous français? Oui. <laughs> well, welcome aboard, sir. Tim and I are old wrestling fans from way back, and you've listened to us on... Wide Men Can't Jump, Wide Men Can't Score. You've had us on the, the Sunday Night Roundtables. You've heard the Royal Rumble special. And we've talked to wrestling on a lot of these programs. And, Tim, give everybody a little bit of an idea, like where you grew up and what you were able to watch wrestling-wise. All right. Well, my wrestling as a child, at a young, till about probably, I don't know, maybe 13, 14 was Stampede Wrestling in Calgary. So I'm quite nice, familiar nice. with with the Hearts and oh Archie the Stomper, Goldie, Abdullah the Butcher I've seen many times. Um, that uh, Dynamite Kid, Davy Boy Smith, all that stuff. Dr. D, David Schultz, seen all those, seen them all. But that was, uh, yeah. you know, uh, uh, that wrestling was kind of, I guess, the, you could kind of equate it to a, a much more an NWA, uh, Smoky Mountain sort of wrestling, I, I guess you could sort of say. It was a little bit, uh, not too heavy on the comedy. Uh, yeah. Much more, not a little more, a uh, little bloody on occasion. Uh, much more, much more of a working than a than a character-driven type wrestling, I guess you could say, for the most part, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And territory wrestling was something that we were able to talk with 
with our first guest here. I actually got to sit down to him, and this interview is quite a long. It's quite a long interview, but you're going to get an opinion of a man from way back, and that's Les Thatcher. Uh, anybody that knows wrestling is Les Thatcher. Um, he was a great trainer out of Cincinnati. He wrestled. We talk a little bit about that, but we also talk about some modern-day stuff, and we talk about Les's experiences wrestling all over the United States, some of the places he's been, and what he's done. And Les is a very interesting character, Tim. Do you know much about Les Thatcher? Uh, uh, yeah, I actually I, I do know not a lot, but I do know that he is a guy who um, he's one of the uh, well, I won't say the few, but uh, a guy who uh, wrestled, promoted a little bit, uh, was an announcer, worked with some of the greatest names in, in announcing, I know for sure. Uh, been not all over the world, but uh, been in a lot of different places and seen a lot, and he, he he could probably tell you a story about pretty much anything. Yeah, and he did. Um, we, you're actually going to hear, when we come into this interview, you're going to hear Les and I uh, actually just kind of, we started off having a conversation off air, and then I started recording um, midway through a conversation we were having because I was like, man, I'm missing good stuff. So we started recording uh, so the interview is a little all over the place, but I hope you enjoy it. We're starting off talking about West Virginia wrestling, which is where I'm out of. So there was a little bit of talk about West Virginia and some of the things that go on here locally for me. Check it out. Take a listen to this interview with Les Thatcher as we dive into the world of pro wrestling. So here's my conversation with Les Thatcher right after we roll in here. We had a lot of stuff down here, especially uh, Georgia. People love Georgia Championship Wrestling, which I well, found strange because Crockett was closer, but yet Georgia was on the TV here with the whole uh, well, now, the way they did things. Yeah, I wrestled in wrestled. Well, I, I've wrestled in Charleston and Huntington for the Indianapolis office for Jim Barnett. I've wrestled yeah. in Charleston and Huntington for the Sheik out of Detroit. I've wrestled in Charleston and Huntington for the Crockett office out of Charlotte. And then I ran the tours for George. Well, but the Georgia thing back then, uh, the, the Superstation was red hot. And I, mm-hmm. I, I was uh, the front man for Ohio, uh, Michigan, and West Virginia. And we drew like crazy in every town. I mean, you know, it was, just, it was red hot back then. Oh, absolutely. And, of course, uh, Smoky Mountain ran through uh, West Virginia. I know that. Bluefield a lot of times. But I know they came up to the Logan Field House some. Back in the early '90s. Yeah. Now we were in, uh, we ran Beckley for Georgia. <clears throat> well, not just Smokey. Uh, back in the '70s, Southeastern Wrestling, we ran up into West yeah. Virginia out of Knoxville too. Yeah. Uh, was that that was before Continental? Before it became Continental, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, okay. Southeastern started. Uh, Ron bought the territory in '74, uh, yeah. and uh, then sold it in '79, I think. So. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. I remember hearing about that. I, I try to keep up with my wrestling history as best I can. Uh, you know, uh, the shame of it I, is that most people. How old are you? Twenty nine. 
All right. I remember being 29. It's been a lot of years ago, <laughs> like 49 years ago, but I remember it. Um, yeah, you know, the, the the sad thing is it seems like today uh, history to people is the day before yesterday. I mean, they, you know, when, yeah. when I broke into business 59 years ago, I mean, I, you know, uh, I had read up on Hackenschmidt and Gotch and so forth and so on, you know, and, and now you start talking. I, I know when I do training camps, I, you know, I'll bring up the name Pat O'Connor and somebody will look at me. Who's that? Oh, yeah. yeah you know, Pat, and I think, well, come on, Pat man. O'Connor. Yeah, sure. the, the original. Was, yeah, and you had to be a shooter back then, and people don't, don't know how to protect themselves anymore back. And, of course, listening to, uh, to Ron talk, you know, Roy Lee Welch and all the Welch brothers and the Fullers and, it, it, it's always interesting to learn. I, I enjoy learning about the history of pro wrestling. It was uh, I actually when I got a I got a history degree from West Virginia State University. My last paper I ever wrote was on pro wrestling. Uh, uh-huh. My professor approved it, and he um, he told me he said you can write about it. He goes, but keep it you know try to keep it under forty pages because we had to write a thesis. So I did. I kept it at thirty five. So. <laughs> but I learned learned about the Gold Dust Trio and and all kinds of stuff like that, which I really enjoyed. So it was fun. The gold Gold so, Dust Trio. I don't now you've lost me. They were the really the first guys out in the Midwest who started. I won't say working the business per se, but they were the guys who really monetized it and took it out of the carnivals. Uh, at first, and they they were called the Gold oh, Dust. You're talking about Butchmont and. and um... Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they had the trio. Uh, damn it, I can't think of all for, the names. Yeah, that was their nickname, and and I cannot for the life of me. I know, I think Toots Mott was involved. Yeah, uh, the was. other guys, the other guys, I'm I'm having trouble remembering, but that was their nickname. Was yeah, here the Gold Dust Trio. <laughs> uh, Ed Strangler Lewis, I think, was involved. Maybe. Well, Lewis was. Um, a cha- I don't know that he was uh, yeah, involved he was in the promotion. Champion. Yeah, he was but, the champion. Well, most you know, at first, a lot of a lot of the shows around the country were run out of New York. That's where a lot of the language. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the the kids today can't can't even talk wrestling for the most part. When they say, uh, "I worked, I worked Nathan." No, you didn't. You worked with Nathan. You didn't work Nathan. Yeah, you, you worked, worked the crowd. You, you know, worked the crowd. But, yeah. When somebody talks about Broadway, which is a draw, right? Yeah. Or uh, yeah. you know, or or Cadillac. Uh, Nathan Cadillac over less, that means you won. But where that all came from is the New York. I mean, uh, telegrams, right. You you do know your history. I'll shut up and let you talk. (laughs) No, you're fine. You're fine. I found it. The trio is Ed Strangler Lewis. They considered it a trio because these were the three guys involved. I was wrong on the – it wasn't the booking. It was Tutsmont, Strangler Lewis, and his manager, Billy Sandow, were considered – the trio because the three of them together basically printed money in the early twenties. Uh, so that was the whole gold dust trio angle. That's what they called them. So right. Right. I, yeah. But yeah, I, I remember hearing about the telegrams and hearing about how that's how most of your wrestling lingo, because they had to keep the, uh, the telegram operators from, from knowing what they were saying. That's where the terms like Broadway came sure. from and sure. things like that. So I've always loved that. I always found it interesting. Have All you right, read well, all guys? I have not, unfortunately. I need to get a copy. I know Scott Teal has uh, reprinted them. I need yeah. to read it. I haven't had a chance yet. Um, I, I saw did. The, just, I, I, I read say, the I original buy, back in. Um, gosh, it was it was in uh, 
the late 60s, uh, one of, a guy who was a major photographer in wrestling in the 60s and 70s, Gene Gordon, based in Charlotte, um, mm-hmm. had uh, Belk's department store was having a street sale for with books and a bunch of stuff. And he picked the hardback uh, Fall Guys up, the orig- a, a copy of the original, for like wow. 75 cents or a dollar or something like that. Wow. And, uh, that's, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. I know uh, I just picked up Alpha Cornette's uh, website. He had the Mid-Atlantic films, so I went ahead and bought those, uh, all the classic Mid-Atlantic Lost Territory films. So I, I bought those, mostly house show footage, but I was able to get a hold of that. And But, I mean, I... I miss I miss some of the older stuff. I miss the old wrestling matches and the old and the angles, the simplicity of the angles, and it's I don't know. It's so convoluted now, and I find myself yeah. watching stuff that I've already seen and enjoying it more than what's on TV. And I, I'm not going to say that you know what's on television. It's just not my cup of tea. I'm not. Well, one of the it's people you know like what. It. Thank you for saying that because uh, you know when I say that, it's like you're a bitter old man. No, I just understand the art of professional wrestling. And I don't see much of that today. It's a, you know, it's a floor exercise, a acrobatic exercise. And, and yeah. don't get me wrong, you know, I could never do half of what Ricochet does. But then I don't need to. No, there's give no need. Give me Harley Race or give me a good heel, and I'll get more heat than Ricochet can get. So it's absolutely, absolutely. You, know? you watch, watch. Uh, I like one of my personal favorites from from way back was, um, well, not really way back, but I always like Bruiser Brody. I was a big Brody fan, uh, yeah. and just him walking to the ring got more heat than most people can get in if a you, ring now. If nowadays. you want to watch a good classic professional wrestling match of modern times, <clears throat> excuse me, go on YouTube and find the uh, Riggle Benoit match from my Pillman show in 2000. I will definitely do that because I love Regal. Love watching Regal. They, so they good. blew the roof so off. Yeah, we, we ran the, that show at Schmidt Fieldhouse at Xavier University, and we had like 2,000 people in the building. And uh, you have to, you, you know, the crazy thing is any of us that were there, uh, Tom Pritchard and I both say when we talk about it, we get goosebumps because they went out there, there was not there was no acrobatics. It was two athletes in competition. And they brought them them people from uh, – uh, actually, if you turn the volume up, you'll hear a couple of idiots yelling boring, which are obviously internet yeah. marks, uh, who are smarter obviously. than the wrestlers. Uh, okay. But at the end of that match, you've got 2,000 people in that building on their feet going out of their mind, and it's all about wrestling. Yeah. Uh, Chris Benoit is one of the most magnificent uh, workers ever in my 59 years. And of course, he and his wife were, were close personal friends, and that's that's beside the point. Absolutely. That weekend is who knows what happened yeah. except for them. But uh, Again, as, yeah. as far as a wrestling talent, I use that uh, that particular match as one of my teaching tools because uh, you know. And again, you don't, Nathan. If I never see another friggin' dive through the ropes, I'll die happy. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it's just dumb. Well, I mean, if ever that's the problem today. Every match is the same. Yeah. You know, yeah, and moves, uh, yeah. I, I moves use analogies all the time. And, yeah, one moves of my analogies with our transitions. Yeah, well, yeah. One of my one of my analogies is uh, I'll say to a guy, you remember the first time you saw your girlfriend naked? Yeah. Do you remember the thousandth time? And don't bother to answer because I know the answer. The answer is no. Because after you've seen her naked so often, 
it becomes commonplace. You know, it's it's it, it's not True. shocking or special. The same way with dives and all this bullshit. It's there's nothing special about it anymore. You know, it's like the first time I saw uh, Flair and and uh, Terry Funk use a uh, use a table, I popped. Nine million table spots later, I don't give a damn. You know, it's yeah. Come on. Unfortunately, that's that's what we've come to now. It's a car accident, and the next time we do something, let's see how much worse we can make it. And eventually, there's going to be go, come to a point where we can't go back. And, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm kind, I'm kind of interested in seeing what AEW and, and what I mean by that. I've been waiting. Everybody's an alternative yet. I haven't seen an alternative. Everybody's just WWE like. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But now they say that Tony Khan is interested in wins and losses because he's a statistician. He's interested yeah. in, in good continuity and long storylines. Okay. But you just signed this, these guys called private party. And all I see there is an acrobatic exhibition. Then I think, okay. And the bucks will do 9,000 super kicks to their actually, you know, yeah. and, uh, did, have you seen Cody's, um, last inter- the interview he did in the last couple of days, uh, about his match with his brother. Not yet. Okay, well, you know, uh, a guy I do the Observer show with, we were, we've been back and forth email. I said, what's important about it is it's serious. It's not a lot of bullshit yeah. or or goofy, you know, goofy yelling or screaming or I hate my brother, or, mom loved him best or this or that. And and now Cody is not a great worker. He's he's solid. He's he's good, but he's not great. He's not Ric Flair. He's not Ricky Steamboat. No, no, uh, not but, at all. Like his and Aldis's match in Chicago was over before it started, and it wasn't a five-star match. I don't rate matches by stars anyway, but just to give an example, it was a good match. Yeah. But the point is, the match was over before it started because of the serious interviews they brought, and that's what's missing in the business, you know. Uh, is, yeah, absolutely. You know, and people say, "Well, everybody's smart." I said, "Really? I, I didn't know that." Um, <laughs> being, uh, but you know, my again, my example there. When I was ten years old uh, and watching Roy Rogers and cowboy movies, I, I was I realized that was a work too. I, he wasn't killing those guys; he was shooting. But they drew me in. Have you, uh, okay, here's another example of you. Take you. To, you've seen Scarface, I'm sure. Absolutely. Okay. When uh, the big blow off with the shooting up the mansion and him snorting the big pile of coke on his desk, and it, it's ninety minutes yeah. in. It's not at the beginning. They bring you along and take you to a climax, and that's what a good match is. That's what a good worker does. You know, yeah. good a, a good match and good sex are the same. They start with foreplay and build to a climax. And Absolutely. when I see 9,000 uh, bumps in the first two minutes, then where do you go from there? Great. Anyway, well, let's uh, take me on yeah. a trip here. All right, well, let's let's talk a little about – Less Thatcher the the early years because I believe getting into some of those early years can help show the development of pro wrestling, especially for people that may not be familiar with a lot of the old territory days. Uh, you started out your first match, if I'm correct, was in Blue Hill, Maine. Am I correct in that? Exactly. Well, this July the fourth this year will be my 59th anniversary of that match. Yes. Yeah. That was and, in 1960. Uh, I was 19 years old. So you don't hear a lot about wrestling in Maine. Uh, what? Who was the territory there? Was there a territory there? Or was it just kind of there in Maine? Is there just you know? Was it outlaw shows or was it an actual territory? 
<laughs> no, there were, well, no. Uh, I actually, where I, I broke in in Boston for a man named, a promoter named Tony Santos, who ran uh, New England. Uh, the, now, when I went to Boston, as I say, I was 19 years old. I went up there in ni- February 1960. But uh, as a little historical thing, uh, Crazy Luke Graham trained there, Dusty trained there nine years after me. Um, but Santos probably was the first legitimate wrestling school. It was a closed shop, and as much as I wanted to be a part of it, you know, you go ask a referee, go ask a wrestler, go. Nobody wanted to open that door. And then Wrestling Review was the the big uh, newsstand publication, monthly publication about professional wrestling at the time. And of course, as a big, huge fan since the age of about nine, uh, you know, I had my my copy every month. So finally, there was a story uh, about Tony Santos, a promoter in Boston who was giving young athletes uh, a chance to build a career in professional wrestling. He had showed his uh, gym and the ring and, and so forth and so on. So I wrote him a letter, and he sent me back a little trifold brochure about, you know, <clears throat> learn to be a professional wrestler, be a TV star, travel the world, blah, 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 you know, the whole thing. Uh, so it was $300 for six months. And... Uh, so I got on a Greyhound bus here in February 1960 and went to Boston and started training with Santos. There was no TV and there was no big major promoter in Boston at that time. The only time the Boston, well, I shouldn't say, I was there in 60 and 61 with Santos, and he did run the Boston Garden himself a couple of times. But the only major promotion that ran the Garden with big stars at that time was a, a promoter named Eddie Quinn out of Montreal. And... Uh, but Santos ran uh, New Hampshire, Maine, uh, Vermont. Uh, we ran the beach towns in the summer and uh, fairs. We did the, the athletic uh, show, take on all comers things in the summer. And, uh, but he had regular towns, you know, through the winter as well. And so that's where I got my feet wet in 1960. And uh, so, you know, the good thing there is you came out uh, of, of – of your training and you were working with guys who had experience. They may not have been in a big territory, but they had experience as, uh, you know, with other guys who had experience today, you know, uh, for the most part, it's a blind leading the blind a lot in the independence, right? Uh, You and I can have this match. We've both been in the business a year and a half with an idiot trainer. We don't know what we're doing right or wrong. We just think we're doing something. And uh, back then it was, it was, uh, you know, a great way to break in. Now, to be honest, when I first got there, uh, the first couple of weeks, they literally handed me my ass because they weren't going to smart. They realized it was it was kayfabe then, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I wasn't smart, and they and they weren't going to you know let you get smart until they were sure you were going to stick. In other words, they weren't going to sit you down and say, you know, this is all a show, and here's how you do it. And in fact, when I tell young trainees today this story, they look at me like I, I have two heads or something. But I broke. I started my training in February 1960. My first match was July the 4th, 1960. And when they actually sat me down and smartened me up was the morning of July the 4th, 1960. So through that whole wow. training process, now I, I kind of, you know, I mean, I went to show. I went and helped set up the ring at at, at the shows and. Uh, Tony's son and I would set the ring up. We'd get in the ring and, and work out some, take a shower, go g- grab a meal, come back, watch the matches. 
tear the ring down, take it back to Boston. And so I was, you know, kind of, uh, you know, wondering maybe this or that, but I was really smart. So the morning of July the 4th, um, I, I lived in a $10 a week rooming house right across the street from the gym. And, uh, in fact, Pat Patterson lived in that rooming house uh, the next year. And a lot of the wrestlers, Alex Medina, Ronnie Dupree, uh, Don Kindred, uh, a, a bunch of the wrestlers lived in the same rooming house. Anyway, um, that morning of July the 4th, 1960, uh, Tony's son came over and knocked on my door. He said, my dad wants to see you. And it's July the 4th, and I'm thinking, wow, what have I done wrong? I figure I'm going to get my rear end chewed out, right? That's the first thing I'm thinking. <laughs> why, why is he calling me in there at 10 o'clock in the morning, for God's sake? So anyway, um, I go over and sit down, and he said, uh, you got your gear. Because back, you know, I had boots, I had uh, trunks. I had uh, There's a lady wrestler that worked in his office, Alma Mills, uh, who made jackets for the boys. She had made me a couple jackets, so forth, so on. Anyway, uh, he said, uh, today's your day. Go home, pack your bag, and come back. So I did and, and, and came back to the gym. And he said, and here's the way they trained us. They didn't smarten us up, but they taught us how to work without us realizing it. And they would, well, like say you and I are in the ring, and they say, Les, you and Nathan, we want you to practice the holes and in the switches and everything, but since you're not getting paid to do this and it's not really a competition, we don't want you guys to hurt each other, so apply the holes, but don't put any pressure on them. So put Nathan huh. in a headlock, but don't squeeze. Put him, you know, Nathan put less in a double wrist lock, but don't apply the pressure. So we were learning to work yeah. without being told. So anyway, uh, Tony says, you, you know how you trained in the gym, you know, without hurting each other. I say, always, well, well, that's kind of the way your match is going to be today. Okay. So anyway, there were th- two, uh, three other wrestlers on this show. It was a fairgrounds. Uh, it was a community, you know, uh, holiday thing on uh, the the ring was set up on the racetrack in front of the grandstand at the fairgrounds in Blue Hills, Maine. And so the ride, I don't, I think it was a couple hundred miles. I'm not really sure. But anyway, in the car with me, uh, Joe Sasso, who was driving, he was, uh, he played football at Boston College. He had only been in the business a few years himself, wasn't much older than me. And uh, Bull Montana, who I bought tickets to watch here in Cincinnati uh, years before that, and yeah. Cowboy Ronnie Hill. And so between Boston and Blue Hills, I started getting my education. Tell me, you know, we were going to. And so actually I had two matches that day because it wasn't uncommon in small, small towns or spot shows that you use four wrestlers and have three matches. So Ronnie Hill and I yeah. opened, opened the show, and then Bull and Joe worked a second match, and then Joe and I came back against Ronnie and Bull in the main event. And that's how it all started for me. Wow, that's that's always fun to hear how people broke broke into the business back in the day, and and that's great to great stories there. Um, but let's fast forward just a little bit here. Let's go to the Maritimes. Uh, you hear a lot about the Maritime territory. I've heard, uh, especially Bobby Blaze talked about working there and some others. But what was the Maritimes like for you up in northern Canada or up in Canada? People that don't know the Maritimes do consist of New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Isle. Uh, places like that up in Canada. What was that yeah, like? Yeah, well, there? that was uh, that was 1970, and it was uh, memorable for me for several reasons. Uh, <clears throat> the, the territory was promoted by a, a dear friend of mine who had been my next door neighbor in Charlotte, and we'd also worked a lot of tag matches together and traveled together out of Charlotte, Rudy Kay. 
there, there was uh, uh, Leo Burke who helped train uh, Bret Hart, uh, among others, and uh, Bobby. Uh, yeah, spit it out, Les. Uh, Rudy K, Bobby <laughs> K, and and uh, the Beast, uh, uh, Ivan uh, Cormier. Those were all brothers, and they. But anyway, Rudy had uh, gone home and opened a territory, as you mentioned, uh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, and so forth. So anyway, I was wrestling in the Tennessee territory at the time, and he called me. He said, "Like, come up work summer for me." They ran a season. Uh, from uh, April to mid-October. And then they closed down for the winter because, obviously, you know, sometimes the snow was up yeah. to your rear end. So <laughs> traveling would get yeah. rather... One of, our co-hosts, one of our co-hosts on the show is from uh, Alberta, Canada, so we know all about the Canadian winters. Well, I wrestled in that end of the country. I wrestled for Stu Hart in 1962 out of Calgary. So, yeah, uh, I'm, oh, aware, I'm aware of that. But it was in the summer. Uh, as dumb as I oh, am, I was always okay. smart enough to go into, uh, to the uh, bad wintered places in the summer, so I didn't have to get stuck <laughs> with that. But uh, anyway, uh, I, I went up to work for Rudy. We based in Moncton, New Brunswick, and um, we worked uh, Halifax, which is where we did our TV, St. John's, Fredericton, so forth, so on, so on. Anyway, uh, I mentioned it was uh, memorable for me for one reason, because that's where I got my first chance to be a broadcaster. Um, Rudy and I, like I say, had traveled together a lot. And, of course, you're in the car and killing time. You talk about all kinds of things. And I had met Gordon Soley in 1967 when I was uh, given the NWA Rookie of the Year Award uh, in Tampa, and uh, Gordon and I bonded not just because of wrestling. We were both. I was into drag racing, and he owned part of a stock car track in St. Petersburg. But more importantly, he was the best wrestling commentator I had seen at that point in time ever. And I always um, had a suppressed desire as a kid to be a disc jockey. You know, uh, back back in the you know fifties and sixties, like Wolfman Jack or something like that. So. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Rudy and I had talked about these things, you know, and I thought, uh, you know, maybe when I'm done wrestling, maybe I'd like to try broadcasting because Gordon really is the one that really sparked that for me. Anyway, so I was in my apartment on Monday before the Moncton show and Rudy called me and, uh, we just, just start talking, you know, how's things going? You, you, are you enjoying yourself? You know, so on, so on. Sure. He said, you know, uh, when we were traveling the roads in Charlotte, we talk all the time. You mentioned you'd like to uh, try uh, being play by doing play by play or hosting a show, and I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, bring a, a, a coat and tie tomorrow when we go to uh, Halifax because you're going to do my TV." Now, Rudy was known as a hell of a river, so the first I'm thinking he's pulling my leg, and I'm going to come and show up on TV <laughs> with a coat and tie, and everybody's going to laugh and say, "Yeah, he got you, didn't we?" So, but he finally convinced me. No, I'm serious. He's his commentator at the time was actually from Toronto, and he'd had a death in the family, so he was had to go right back to Toronto. And so um, we wrestled in Moncton on Monday, drove to Halifax, worked the Halifax uh, Forum on on Tuesday night, stayed over, and did TV on Wednesday morning. Now I'd been on television, I'd been interviewed on television, but. I, you know, I didn't know a format or a lead in or a wrap around or a segue yeah. uh, from my <laughs> left hand, you know, but call, now I realized back then too, Nathan, there weren't broadcast teams. There was one guy, 
I mean, that was yeah. it. You know, there weren't, it wasn't yeah. a color man and a, and a play-by-play guy. So anyway, I got my feet, you know, it's like your dad throwing in, in, the, in the lake, it's sink or swim, right? And that's how yeah. I got my start. Um, and uh, I got through it somewhere or another. And so, I, I, you know, I thought the guys could be gone maybe three or four weeks, whatever it was. So after a couple of weeks, Rudy called me aside and he said, look, he said, you're doing a heck of a job for me. Um, and I'm just going to leave. I, I, what I want to do is leave the guy back and leave him in Toronto. I'll pay you over and above what you're getting for wrestling. And uh, you stay and finish out the season as, as my uh, host of my show. So I did. And that's how I, how I, I actually broke into broadcasting. When you broadcast all over the place, um, really, from everywhere, from mid-Atlantic, working with Gordon Sully, uh, southeastern Georgia, you know, Smoky Mountain, people know all about that. You know, you, broadcasting maybe, do you think broadcasting maybe took you places you didn't expect uh, in terms of, because you had a lot, of course, broadcasting not, doesn't take the toll on the body that pro wrestling No, does, it does Broadcasting really... <laughs> <laughs> and it really opened a lot of doors for your career. Did you prefer broadcasting to pro wrestling? No. I, honestly, I love them both. I mean, you know, and, and I did both for a long time. That was 1970. Up until 1980, I was wearing, well, more than two hats, actually. Um, <clears throat> but I also uh, did broadcasting for um, several, well, uh, Mario Savoldi ran up in New England back in, in the late 80s. And actually, Luthez was my color man there. Uh, but we used guys, you mentioned Bruiser Brody earlier, Kevin Sullivan, Austin Idol, Gary Hart, um, et cetera, et cetera. So we had a good crew up there, too, um, the, the Sheep Herders. And uh, I, I, used to, I used to fly over to uh, San Juan for Carlos Colon every, oh, every six weeks or so. And, um, of course, his shows were done in Spanish. But he also promoted Barbados and Trinidad, which were English-speaking uh, islands or colonies or whatever the hell you want to call them. So anyway, I would go over there for a couple days, and we would go down to a smaller TV station at, uh, further out in the island. Uh, and I would do opens and closes in English and then sit down and watch the matches on, on, uh, on tape and call the play-by-play. So I, I, you know, um, I was seen in Barbados and Trinidad as well, and uh, but yeah, and then Ann Gunkel, who was part of the big war in Atlanta in seventy three, seventy four. Yeah. After after the Gunkel Enterprises burned out there, she started in the early eighties. Um, she tried to put together a promotion in South Georgia and uh, Northern Florida, and a dear friend of mine, Jerry Oates, was the booker. So I, I did some TVs for her as well, and. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, Smokey, uh, Southeastern, Atlanta, Mid-Atlantic, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, New Brunswick, uh, the Maritimes, plus, you know, uh, like I say, the, the uh, Savoldi uh, shows up in New England in, in the early 80s. And, um, so I, I loved them both. But when I say I, I wore more than one hat, Ron Fuller bought Southeastern at uh, the, the Knoxville office in, in um, 1974. And um, I was living in Charlotte at the time and working with their TV and, and doing their magazine and uh, wrestling, all three, working in the office, wrestling, doing the TV and the interviews, and uh, I was producing their magazine. <coughs> Excuse me. So 
between November of 74 and November of 77, my week was uh, start Monday in Charlotte, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday between TV, uh, you know, I might go in the office on Monday, sit down with George Scott and Gene Anderson and go over uh, however many, pro- realize we had like 35 shows out on tape. So we had two, two and a half, two, two minute and 20 second, two, two minute and 20 second promos for each show, plus uh, some other, you know, promos that you're buying time in, a, in an area off the air. I mean, off the, the major program or somebody's going out of town. Anyway, we used to do yeah. promos in the Raleigh TV station from noon on Wednesday till sometimes till five o'clock. And um, so anyway, I'd get, you know, get all my information, make up my idiot sheets, which hung under the uh, TV, under the lens of the TV camera so everybody could see what was going on. But I, I might wrestle uh, Tuesday, Monday and Tuesday for Charlotte to get my stuff together, go to Raleigh on Wednesday, do the TV, uh, maybe wrestle someplace Thursday, Friday morning, get on a plane in Charlotte, fly to Knoxville. Uh, Ron and I would sit down in his apartment and put the TV together, uh, wrestle Knoxville Friday night, spot show on Saturday, get back on the plane Sunday, go back to Charlotte. And I did that from uh, November 74 to November 77. Sometimes I waved at myself, passing myself in the air. There I go. Here I come. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, and that's a hectic schedule. I was yeah, saying that's well, a hectic schedule. The, the great thing, you know, I, I just did Ron's uh, super stud cast with him here a couple weeks ago. And Ron and I have been friends for almost 50 years. But the the cool thing about the Knoxville uh, thing, I had wrestled. Well, I first wrestled Knoxville in 1968 for John Kazana. And uh, Whitey Caldwell was my partner. We were the first hot baby faces uh, off it, when he got TV in 1969. And we did big business there. Uh, among others, with Ron and Don Wright, and so I've worked in I've worked Knoxville for five different promotions as a wrestler, at plus as a commentator and one thing or another. But anyway, Ron called me and said, "I'm buying Kazan out, and I know nothing about television. I want you to come in and put me together uh, a TV show. You've got Carta Blanche, obviously within reason. So we developed some things on the Southeastern show." Um, in Knoxville that had never been done on television before and are, are commonplace today. And um, which, you know, I, I love doing that because of the creative part of it and being allowed to, you know, turn loose and say, here, build me something. And of course, uh, you know, we did. And uh, so, yeah, so I was doing both offices and then Ron finally said, look, I want you to come up here and, and full time. So in 77, I moved to Knoxville full time. Then the war began. He sold out to Barnett. I stayed with Barnett for a while. Then I went down to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Pensacola. Ron had opened Southeastern South, I guess you'd call it, uh, in the Mobile yeah. Pensacola office. And then I, then when Crockett, uh, Ric Flair and Blackjack Mulligan bought the Knoxville office from Barnett, uh, Rick called me and said that, uh, channel 10 WBIR there where we'd started doing TV in early 75, um, they said they'll keep us on the air, but one of their uh, things they wanted was you to come back and handle the show because I had a great working relationship with the station, as you know, and we had great numbers. So I moved back to Knoxville and uh, did TV for them until they finally closed their doors. And then, of course, I were uh, Kevin Sullivan and I booked and did TV for a 
local promotion, which was short-lived, uh, between there and Jimmy opening uh, Smokey up there. So um, Knoxville's been a big part of my career off and on. But, yeah, it, it's, yeah. Uh, you know, when I, you say, which did I, I I loved them both, you know. And but I also realized I was I was barely forty years old when I I put twenty years in the ring, and um, I said, "Well, you're so young." I said, "But you know, I, I realized I'd bur- I was burned a candle at more than two ends, right? I was wearing two or three hats in both yeah. offices, and uh, it, it it came down to the point where I, I was, you know." kind of getting burnt out and I'm thinking okay I've had a good ring career right I've held different tag team championships I've wrestled for the the world junior title I've been rookie of the year one thing and another and um so you know how much more can I accomplish physically as a wrestler you know I feel like I'd I you know I'd done pretty well for myself and I realized as a broadcaster or as a producer of television you know uh as you mentioned it's not it's not a physical problem you might drive yourself nuts mentally, but you know, yeah, you, you're not going to break a leg being a commentator. So then I hung the tights up uh, at age 40 in 1980, and uh, you know, then just continued on with the broadcasting until uh, I became a trainer as well in uh, what 1992. Yeah. Well. You mentioned Crockett, and you mentioned going back to work there when when Flair and Mulligan bought out Knoxville, and you know Mid Atlantic really took over basically the entire NWA. Uh, the National Wrestling Alliance was has been a huge part of pro wrestling back in uh, you know the '80s before the buyout from Ted Turner and the becoming of WCW and what it became later on. But now it's kind of resurging a little bit, and I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on what do you think of the NWA now versus then? What are they doing right now, if you're keeping up with it, versus what do they need to do? Because I watched the NWA um, event the other night, the resurgence of the Crockett Cup. I enjoyed it. Um, and I was but it wasn't like the real co- Crockett Cup, was it? No, it was not. <laughs> no, it was not. No. The, the, and, and I don't mean that in an insulting way. But the level of talent uh, was different, and and the whole end, you know that's I'd love to see the end. You know, people talk about the res, you mentioned resurgence, and uh, you know they have you know they've gone through a couple ownerships, and this one seems to be more stable and everything than the the last couple before that. Uh, but. Obviously, it's never going to be what it was, you know, when I broke in the business. I mean, it was, you know, it was a major power. And uh, you wanted to wrestle for the NWA. I mean, that was, you know, well, I say I was NWA Rookie of the Year. And uh, from that point on, I don't know that I ever worked for an office that wasn't NWA affiliated until, I'm trying to think, until the late 80s, I guess. But um, yeah, and that and that NWA name was so important because if you got into a promotional battle or somebody you know some outlaw show came in and you were struggling, um, you know maybe they were stealing some of your talent. The NWA would back you up. It was really uh, an organization you wanted to be part of. You look at you know maybe even look at the the battle between Goulas and, and Jared in Memphis and 
those things, and even the battle, as you mentioned, in Atlanta, the NWA really stepped up and tried to protect their investment. Sure, sure. Well, that was, you know, uh, the, the Gunkel thing, virtually everybody in the end, uh, everybody that pulled out of the NWA office all at once, with the exception of Bob Armstrong and maybe one or two others, and I can't remember exactly who, but Bob has been a close friend for so many years, I do remember that. But the other NWA offices sent in talent to be sure that the NWA office in Atlanta didn't have to shut down for any length at all, you know. And they so they filled yeah. the card out. And that's actually um, what really put Gunkel under in the long run was so many guys didn't want to run against the – I mean, when I say guys, wrestlers didn't want to uh, go in for her against the NWA – and so, at, you know, and at some point, <clears throat> you can't uh, you can't prove it by the current, the way things are run currently. But you know, back then, top I don't care who you were, the the best or the worst, everybody has shelf life. So, she she basically had the same crew of guys from the day she started at uh, Gunkel Promotions until she finally shut the doors because. They had run through every cycle of uh, angles and storylines and feuds and so forth, and it just, you know, there was nothing left to do with that same crew of guys. But, uh, yeah, you, you you know, the NWA was was a big powerhouse. Today, uh, I loved Nick, the Nick, you and I mentioned it earlier, the Nick Altus and uh, Cody Rhodes thing in Chicago. Um, part of what made that match was their serious promos. There's no sports entertainment. It wasn't a circus act. It wasn't either one of them screaming and yelling at one another, but it was two athletes talking about, well, to beat this guy, I've got to do this, but I respect him because he's done that. And uh, that match was over before it stepped in the ring in Chicago. And um, yeah. that was great. When they made uh, James Elworth a contender, I had a heart attack. Um <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, t- to me, a clown, I mean, and, and I don't know James Elworth, and I don't mean this in a disparaging or insulting way, but he's used it as a comic foil. Am I right? Basically, yes. So so how does a comic foil become a, a number one contender for a world title? Yeah, I, and I, I totally understand that. Uh, I get I get your point. I don't know. It's, it's uh, again... You know, all this is traveling all over the world, defending his title and promoters. And I've, I've even had the pleasure of calling one of his matches uh, a few months ago. And it was a fantastic show, a uh, fantastic match. The match was taken very seriously. Um, the workers, they, they worked very hard, and they had a fantastic match. And, you know, they, they announced the rules. They, they came to the center of the ring, and the title was up for grabs. It was it was as serious as serious could get, and it was really a fantastic show. So I don't know how you take someone who looks like Nick Aldis, monster that he is, a great worker, and he comes in, looks great, you know, got the suit on, looks like a million dollars, and how you can really try to make that comedy. It, it doesn't add up to me. No, what doesn't, and it shouldn't. Uh, to me, uh, to give you an example, Kenny Omega, uh, I, I watch his Japanese matches, and now you got to realize who you're talking to here. Uh, I, I split hairs. I mean, I've never seen a match. I don't care if it's Steamboat and Flair. They couldn't be better. And I'll tell you the truth, Steamboat and Flair would tell you the same thing, or any of the top workers, Harley Race, 
Terry Funk, any of those guys that say, you know, I used to do training camps with Harley and Steamer. And one of the things that I always said to the group with us, I said, between the three of us, we've had I don't even know how many thousands of matches. But I can tell you this, none of us have had our best match yet because you're never satisfied. And uh, so, you know, it's that's an important thing, too. Uh, but you've got to be careful who you put in a position to be a contender. If he doesn't walk like a contender, look like a contender, wrestle like a contender, then he ain't one, brother. <laughs> that's that's just the facts facts of life, you know. Yeah, very true. And I think that I think that Mads made some bad choices in that respect. Like the guy, and again, I don't know these. Josephus is a gimmick. Um, and so uh, I, I don't know him, but the whole mystical whole thing, I, I don't see the need. Our business as a whole, across the board, needs to pull back from the showbiz part of it. And the bad comedy, and I say bad because I haven't seen very since the Rocks retired. I haven't seen much good comedy. Um, <laughs> and, and, and and you know what what this a you know we talk about workers. This guys where the guys that call everything in the ring are workers. The guys that call everything in the back are performers. Is there a difference? Yes, very much so. And the the great work, uh, workers are diminishing simply because. A lot of people don't teach that. When I had my school, physically had my school here for so many years, or when I go out and do weekend training camps, um, that's, uh, you know, if you started with me, Nigel McGinnis, Shark Boy, uh, to name a couple, uh, you, you, you learn how to call a match in the ring, period, end of story. That was taught to you because uh, you, every crowd's different. Nathan and I can have a match, and you mentioned Logan, West Virginia. We can have a match in Logan and blow the roof off the place. We can take that match to Wheeling, and the people will sit on their hands. If we don't know how to shift gears and change the match in the ring, we're in trouble. And uh, so that's what all this can do. Um, But, you know, I think you've got to be careful who you put with him. Uh, Not that he can't have a good match with everybody, but that it's the imagery thing, right? That makes that makes a difference. Is this guy really? <clears throat> well, you know, like he, uh, I don't know who he worked with in in West Virginia when you saw him, but if that if it was a promotion that runs there with some regularity and they knew they had Nick coming in, say two months from today, then I'm going to take whoever my best babyface is and start grooming him for that match and getting him over, which is going back to the territory days, right? I mean, uh, yeah, you know. Uh, Flair went into Dallas. He worked with their top babyface. He went into L.A. He worked with their top babyface. But they Dallas knew and L.A. knew, or, or Knoxville for that matter. We knew he was coming. We knew when he was coming. So you're getting somebody ready for him. You just don't throw somebody indiscriminately in there. And James Elworth is indiscriminate. I mean, he's and, and again, I don't know James Elworth. I don't have a personal. It's I'm looking at it as a promoter, as a wrestler, as a trainer. Um, as a booker, which all the things I've done in my lifetime. And uh, so I, I think they missed the boat there some. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I see them, they take one or two steps forward and they take another step back. And, again, I'm critical. And, and I split right. hairs. And so, you know, to say these things is not to say that they're not doing something right. They are. Uh, I know they say that Corrigan has a 20-year plan. At my age, I probably won't be around to see how, how that plan, <laughs> how that works out in 20 years. I don't know, but um, 
I, I think they they built to a point and then it kind of slipped. You know, now I've known Ricky Gibson, uh, Robert Gibson. I mean, since he was his the little brother to Ricky before he ever got in the business. I've known. Yeah. Uh, Ricky Morton, since he was nine years old, and used to follow his dad, who was a great referee, into the dressing rooms in uh, in Nashville. Uh, they were a they the Q the, the the word that you need to pay attention to here. They were one of the greatest tag teams. They are both long in the tooth. So I'm not going to send them out there with a young hot tag team, whether they're going to do the job for the Briscoes or not do the job. Because as much as the fans respect them, you know, I would rather have them presenting the belts at the end of the thing. Or am I making sense? I hope. Oh, absolutely, make you know, perfect sense. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I and, and that's no disrespect to Ricky or, or Robert at all, you know. But it's just, um, you know, I, or, or if you're gonna, you know, I know they were doing matches at a lot of different places. I've, I've seen a couple with. The, the Midnight Express, okay, that's a nostalgia match, which makes sense. All these guys are in the same age bracket, right? But, yeah. um, you know, I, I saw Mike Jackson, who is, my God, is 60 years old, I guess, and is still in a great athletic shape, but he's 60 years old. And I saw him beat a, a, a young worker in Charlotte a few years ago who was probably 23 or 24, now, to me, the smart thing here is for Mike to take him out there, take him to school, and put him over. To, because yeah, that, that makes make sense, right? It would make more sense, yes. Yeah, to me, to me, the L-O-G-I-C is missing in wrestling today, logic. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, – I, I, I'm not going to put Rey Mysterio against uh, Braun Strowman. I mean, for any reason, <laughs> you know. For any reason, we definitely it makes agree, no we agree sense. on that. You know, <laughs> it makes agree. no sense. Yeah, I was. Actually, um, I, and this may get me some heat with a lot of people, but I was actually rather upset when Rey Mysterio won the heavyweight title years ago. I was like, especially oh, when he's not heavy, right? Exactly. And Ray, you know, I know Ray, Ray's trained at my when he first came to WWF or WWE. Uh, they he spent several weeks here with me because to get used to the twenty foot ring and real ropes opposed yeah. to cable. And yeah. uh, he's worked the Pillman shows for me. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of Ray's. But Ray's a cruiser, oh, whether fan- you like it or you fantastic. don't like it. Yeah, he's fantastic. I, I take nothing away from how great he is and what he's done for pro wrestling. But, I, you know, Ray Mysterio as the heavyweight champion to me was me going, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I, I, no, I agree. I, well, you know, Kofi. Uh, I first worked with Kofi. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm trying to think how many years ago this has been now. Probably 2005, six, something like that. He came with a group of kids out of Boston: uh, Ricky Steamboat, Terry Taylor, Dr. Tom, uh, and myself. Did a three-day camp in the in the Carolinas. I say the Car- we we finished up on Sunday in Charlotte, but we uh, we had each day was in a different town with a different show. And uh, they, a bunch of kids came by, virtually a busload of kids out of New England. And that's where I first saw Kofi. And we were all impressed that at the time he'd been training about six months. And um, he's a good kid, and I like him. He's not my heavyweight champion. He is a gimmick. Uh, first of all, he's not a heavyweight, as you mentioned. But, you know, like Monday night, I, I when I watched him come into the ring, I thought, and I thought back, 
how would it look if Luthez came down throwing pancakes to the audience? <laughs> that visual. I have that visual right now, and it's it's pretty entertaining. <laughs> or Pat O'Connor, or Dory Funk, or Jack Briscoe. First of all, if you ask them to do that, they'd probably punch you in the nose. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. And, and again, this is not a knock on Kofi. New Day is entertaining, but it's a comedy act. Comedy acts in my life or in my promotion, if I'm running one or if I'm a booker, comedy acts aren't champions. They're comedy acts. You can't turn Barney Fife into Superman. Or you can try, <laughs> and he never, but it's not going to work. Handle being, he never could handle being sheriff. No, no, Barney he couldn't. You're right. So that's, maybe that's the mentality. Maybe maybe the comedy act doesn't need to be the sheriff of no, the man I, in charge. Really, you know, and like I say, I know Xavier. I don't know E. Xavier, I've, I've worked at training camps with him. And like I say, uh, and that same camp that Kofi was at, there was a guy whose name at the time was Thomas Penmanship. That's how he wrestled. He now is known as uh, Tomasa Ciampa. And, uh, wow. But, you know, uh, yeah. So to me, serious guys who come across seriously are, are people that are title contenders or champions. Uh, now, and when people say, well, you know, you're old. You know, we had funny guys. Back in the day, but everybody wasn't funny. Everybody wasn't a gimmick. Everybody didn't do a dive. Everybody, everything wasn't same, same. Uh, when Dusty passed away, uh, a lot of guys talked to me because they knew I, uh, you know, knew Dusty and uh, had worked. I, we never worked against one another. We were both baby faces, but, you know, we'd worked uh, together in in different places. And, um I said, you know, one, and they talk about what well, Dusty was charismatic and he was this, he was all those things. But one of the things that made Dusty stand out in the 70s was there was only one of him. There wasn't 16 people with over the top gimmicks. Today, everybody has an over the top gimmick. Uh, yeah. and, and I'll go back to, I mentioned Benoit to you earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. Chris Benoit. You know, I always I tell kids that I train today, if you watch the Benoit match, watch him come into the ring, and if you've never seen a wrestling show in your life and you're just channel surfing and you happen to stop, what is this? Oh, it's, oh, that's that professional wrestling. If Benoit was coming down that aisle, you didn't have to know who he was, or what, but you knew he was coming to kick somebody's ass because True. of his, his demeanor, his stance, the way he carried himself. There's not enough of those guys today. You know, uh, part of the allure was getting you emotionally involved, not by turning as a baby face, turning around, stomp my foot and clap my hand. In my promotion, you don't do that or you get my foot up your ass. Um, <laughs> that's, that, no, it's stupid heat. It's cheap heat. You don't have to know how to work to do that. You know, that's to me, heat is, heat is this. If you're the heel and I'm the baby face, then our interaction is what draws the people in. If I have to turn around and ask them to support me, then I'm not doing my job. If the you know, um, but that's you know that's what's I think missing in the business today. And that was my hope that the NWA would bring that more back more in you know, and they, with Aldis as champion, they have or the match between Cody and Aldis. Now in that match, I would have left Cody's wife out of it completely. It wasn't necessary. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it know, wasn't. No, and, and there's so I, I did, much. I did. I did like. Go ahead. I did like the match between he and Marty Skrull and how they kind of took uh, the insurance policy out of it. 
uh, Camille. Uh, I, I I enjoyed that match. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the match between he and Skrull from the Crockett Cup. Well, I will tell you the truth. I was I, I was uh, mildly surprised. Now I just didn't see Marty as a contender, you know. And when I heard the match was made, I thought, okay, but they 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 fooled me, uh, you know. And it was good. It was it was it was very good. I thought. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, to me, my title matches are going to be serious. And uh, you know, they talk about Lesnar's matches are short, but Lesnar's matches are intense. You believe Brock Lesnar? They are. Whether you want. Whether yeah. you want to or you don't, right? Yeah, you do. You know, and, I, and uh, I've been, I've been critical. I, I was always critical of him having the title because the title wasn't on TV every week. But one thing's uh, for sure, you, you believe Brock Lesnar. My problem is the title is on TV every week. I, I How can, hard is and, it and, for you to get it? When, when you know, when uh, I think it was when Roman won, and I'll defend it every week. I thought, okay, that's bad. If something is I mean, done I, all the time, I, then it's not special. I, I get, I, and then that makes sense. It does make sense. Uh, back back in the day, in the sixties and the seventies, uh, when I was, you know, if you were a champion, you only had to defend your title once every thirty days. Which, if the heel was wearing the belt, it gave him, uh, you know, hey, you want this? Let me see you beat somebody. I'm not going to wrestle you. You know, I mean. Um, we well this this whole thing with Owens turned on Kofi. What they had known each other for fifteen minutes and he turns on him. Everybody, did you know <laughs> he was going to turn before he turned? Yeah, everything's in a rush. It's like we're double parked and we got to get out before the meter runs out, right? Um, yeah, and, and they don't the allow thing. stories to be told you, anymore. I, I, yeah, I said to you earlier, a good wrestling match is like good sex. You start with foreplay and you build to the climax, and you don't. Give the you give the uh, one of the greatest bookers of all time, a man named Leo Garibaldi, uh, always said, you know, you give them what they want, just never when they expect it, and you milk them to get something to make them want to watch. You know, I'm I'm a big I don't know if you how much uh, series TV you watch or don't watch. I'm a big fan of James Spader and The Blacklist. You ever watched it? My mother's a huge fan, so I've seen good, it. Good. I don't. I like your mom already. Yes, uh, but the <laughs> point the, the point is they leave you wanting something, and you can't wait till the next week, right? Or or the, the, this is a series, uh, the season finale. Damn it! I've got to wait four months to see what happened. We don't give people that. We don't give people that in our business any longer, and and we should. Which doesn't mean you can't have a dive. I just don't want to see dives in every match. I don't want to yeah, see, makes sense. you know, uh, and I want my title matches to be competitive wrestling matches between two athletes. Uh, and everything, I, I don't mean everything has to be that way. And I, and I, and believe me, Nathan, when uh, somebody listen to this saying that old sucker, he wants to turn the clock back to where they're holding oh, no, it. We're going to hammer lock for 10 minutes. No, I don't. I realize that life is speeded up, but not to the point where you and I shake hands. We're introduced in the first hour, and by the third hour, we're feuding. Huh? Who cares? I mean, you know, you're, when tag teams broke up before, they first of all, they had to establish that they were tag teams, right? Which took months. Yeah. You, you took, Again, I mentioned to you earlier uh, the um, Scarface movie. 
You know, and I point that out to these kids who think the bell rang so I got six spots in. Why? The Scarface movie, I, I'm not sure it was 90 minutes. It was between 90 and 120. We both know that. But they yeah. took all that time to tell you a story and bring you along so that when that big gun battle at the end in the mansion and he's got his face buried in that big pile of cocaine and the whole thing, you were ready for it. They didn't give you that at the beginning of the movie. If they had, you could have gone home. Yeah, you see my that's point? very true. And Oh, absolutely, I do. And you know what, Les, I've taken way too much of your time talking with you today. We've went, We've already went an hour, and I feel like there's so much more we need to cover. So what I'll do is I will be in contact with you again, uh, and we will continue this conversation at a later date, if that's okay with you. Sure. Well, you know where to send my check, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. I'm a smart. I'm a smart ass on top of everything else, Nathan. So <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with that. But I do listen. It is an honor to speak with you. I've been a fan for years of professional wrestling. I've listened to your commentary, and I do thank you for taking the time out of your day. And even if you just want to talk old school pro wrestling, you're welcome to anytime. Shoot me a message, and uh, we'll talk. Cause it, it was. It's been really fun and a learning experience. May, for me may I throw a cheap it. plug in here? Please, please do. Okay, I love cheap plug. Anyway, uh, I still do weekend training camps for independent promotions. And uh, I feel certain that if you give me a weekend uh, with a, a bunch of wrestlers, I will give them tools that will improve their game. Uh, I've, I've worked with uh, some of the top schools and top trainers in the country. Uh, I can say that I'm the trainer a lot of the trainers learn from. And I think people like uh, Danny Cage and Rudy Gonzalez and Tom Pritchard and Rip Rogers would tell you the same thing. Uh, you can reach me less at epwt.com or less thatcher at zoomtown.com. I'd be more than happy to send you out the information on on my camps and how what I do and the cost and and so forth and so on. It's uh, I have, still have as old and beat up as I am, I still have a passion for the business, and I've touched a lot of the current stars, uh, Cassius Ono, Adam Cole, Drew Gulak, are all guys that have worked with me in in training and I think would give me references. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, also, if you're a T-shirt fan, uh, the first ever pro wrestling T-shirt in the ever, period, in 1972 was Briscoe Boosters. The artwork was done by Jerry Lawler, and Jack and Jerry Briscoe and myself came up with the concept and put those T-shirts on the market. And you can go to Pro Wrestling Tees and get a copy of that shirt today as well. Wow. So, and, and Jerry and I need the money, by the way. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I do thank you again, Les, for jumping on and talking with me a little bit. And and I do, and I, I'm I really hope we can talk again because honestly, this has been one of the more entertaining and interesting interviews I've ever got to do. And thank you so much. And if you don't care, I may actually send you over um, a clip of the match, the Nick Aldis match that we had at our local promotion and. Sure. Um, I, you will hear, you will hear my commentary and do do give pointers. I will take all the pointers that I can get, uh, commentary wise. That's so. great. And Nathan, I've enjoyed it, and I'd be happy to do it with you again sometime. All right. Well, thank you so much, and you have a good rest of your day. And I will talk to you very soon. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Les Thatcher, and Les had a lot to say. 
and we dived really deep to him into pro wrestling and lessons of mind that pe- a lot of people haven't tapped. And, and he's a brilliant trainer and knows a lot about the pro wrestling business. So I do want to thank Les for getting on here and talking with us. And I'm hoping we can talk some more on down the line because he's got so many stories to tell. There's got to be a book in there somewhere, Nate. Well, I'm sure there is. I, I'm absolutely sure there is. But, you know, Les talked about a lot of different subjects here. You know, you just heard it in the interview, and he dived all over. And we talked a lot of old-school wrestling, but he gave his opinion on modern-day wrestling as well. Um, and that's the thing with modern-day wrestling. There, and There seems to be a constant debate going on right now all over the world about what constitutes modern wrestling, what is, what isn't. Um, you got people getting angry, you got threats, and everybody's trying to tell each other what exactly modern wrestling is and what it isn't. Um, and again, you know, it's it's all entertainment, it's all in what you like. Nobody can really tell you how to spend your money. That's um, right. So, I mean, it, it, it just kind of comes up to, to what you like and what you're into. Um and, and I'm I'm a little I'm one of those people that, you know, maybe I don't want to see uh, some of the comedy spots that we see in modern wrestling on a show that you would assume well, would be a more serious show. But the thing with the comedy spot is it, it can it can it has to be a one time shot. It's not a comedy spot yeah. anymore when when that's your gimmick. And we won't yeah, go I mean, in, or, you know, if you know, right. what I, if you know what I mean. Like, it's one thing to have a one-off moment of something humorous that fits the situation and the storyline, etc. But if your whole shtick is a comedy bit, that's not wrestling anymore to me. That's it might be well thought out. It might take require a lot of skill. I'm I'm not saying any of that. It just isn't wrestling to me. And there's a fine line there, and that line is probably different for everyone. So you yeah, vote with and, your wallet. And, and you vote with your wallet, as they say. Exactly. So it all comes down to what you like and what you're into. And uh, and that's kind of what we aim for here with this, a little bit of everything on this uh, pro wrestling yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And speaking of wrestling today, uh, we had to dive back into wrestling from yesteryear with Les. Now I was able to sit down and have a chat with Carrie Silken. And for those of you that may not know, Kerry Silken is the ambassador for Ring of Honor. He's the guy who shows up on television for them, presents the titles to the new world champion. Um, he was there at the uh, G1 Supercard in Madison Square Garden, formerly an owner of Ring of Honor. And he and I sat down and talked for a little bit, and we talked about Kerry being in Ring of Honor, owning Ring of Honor, how Ring of Honor has grown, where they can go, basically the state of Ring of Honor. And we got it from the horse's mouth. I mean, this is a guy who has been there since the the epicenter and sold to Sinclair in 2011. And he talks about the business side of Ring of Honor, and he talks about things like that and some of the talent that's come through there and how they've basically become a farm system for pro wrestling. Um and that's that's kind of what Kerry and I got to talk about. He's a super nice guy, and I'm glad I got to sit down and have a talk with him. Tim, are you familiar with Kerry Silken? Uh, yeah, Kerry uh, was really, uh, without getting into it, because I don't want to give any press to anybody else, his name gets tossed around quite a bit. Uh, 
when we talk about the mud show and all that sort of stuff and yeah uh, and it's it's a know, guy who uh, and it's on uh what's the word it, it isn't uh that's not really what he's that's not his thing well Carrie is a guy who in my opinion is one of the nicest guys I've ever had to talk with um I can only go by how people how people treat me Oh, Carrie, I agree, but I've, I've heard, it, like, I've heard the word sellout and stuff like that attributed to him that he's only in it for the money, these sorts of well, things. And well, well, if I'm you, not if sure that there's another that, reason to be. I'm not sure there's another reason to be in business except for the money. But well, if you look at it this way, <laughs> Ring of Honor under Carrie Silken, and Carrie even says this in the interview, Ring of Honor never actually really turned a profit um, under his well, watch. The they were constantly they, losing they, money. These are the things that the marks don't know. And sometimes we right. gotta go to the source to to get the actual facts on these things because nobody wants to believe anything that just you know Joe Blow has to say about it. So we go right to the source and we'll find out from him. And we did. So let's go right now to the source himself. Here is Ring of Honor Ambassador Carrie Silken and our conversation about pro wrestling. Well, joining me right now on the show live here on our Wide Men Can't Jump Wrestling special is Carrie Silken, one of the founding members of Ring of Honor Pro Wrestling. Carrie, thank you so much for jumping on here and talking with us a little bit. Uh, you're welcome, to, Nate. And uh, may I, not to correct you, but may I just throw in, and still the current yes. Ring of Honor ambassador, whatever that is, True. but I am. So it's, it's <laughs> still, uh, I, I paid for that position, believe me. I believe it, but uh, Ring of Honor. If in case you're you're living under a rock as of late, Ring of Honor uh, is a huge wrestling promotion out of. It was based out of Philadelphia uh, for many years, and now it's basically it's owned by Sinclair. But uh, Mr. Silken, Carrie Silken here, owned the company. He's still an ambassador, and Ring of Honor is just blowing up, doing huge things right now. Um, just had the uh, the G1 Supercard with New Japan, but it didn't start out that way. Can you talk about the beginning of Ring of Honor? Where did the idea come from, um, and what got the ball rolling for you to get involved with Ring of Honor? Well, we're gonna we're gonna do a, a, an extremely abbreviated, uh, highly edited history, but nevertheless, we will do. Uh, I was not originally. I knew the gentlemen who originally were uh, starting Ring of Honor. You know, which uh, amongst them was Gabe Sapolsky. And I was friends with Doug, who worked for RF Video. And Mm -hmm. uh, there was another guy. And um, I knew these guys from the ECW. I was an ECW fan. Now, I've been a wrestling fan since, geez, I'm I'm, I'm so, so old. But I've been a wrestling (laughs) fan since 1966. And my first wrestling show live was 67 and my first show at masters for garden was 71 but anyway by the 90s you know how uh, my, my wrestling love would fade in and out and in the 90s um I, I, when i was discovered ecw or saw ecw this was like the um you know what what every if, the way i used to explain it to my non-wrestling friends was this is what everybody this is what 
all the wrestling companies, uh, whether it was WCW at the time, WWF, there were always the stuff that we wanted to see that they were scared to do. But uh, this is it. So anyway, that's where I met uh, these guys. I knew them for years. And when ECW folded, I had an inkling they were going to start a small promotion. And I had previously dabbled in some pro wrestling uh, business. Strangely mm-hmm. enough, I was involved with a wrestling magazine in Puerto Rico, which is about three po- three to five podcasts to itself. But anyway... Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I um, they didn't need my help, uh, so they thought. And uh, after about six months, they came to me on a financial, you know, uh, getting involved. So I did. I got involved financially. I, I believed in what was going on, and uh, some incidents happened that we are not going to talk about today. Yeah. But anyone no, not who knows talk the about history that. can. Anyone who could could Google it online. But uh, some incidents happened which uh, were able to um, uh, get me as the sole owner of Ring of Honor. And strangely enough, if those incidents wouldn't have happened, the company probably would have went out of business. But that's another story. Anyway, because I would have backed out. Um, But things uh, worked its way way out. And I was the full owner uh, completely, I guess it was... 2000 and early 2004 and uh from there uh you know we we we, it was everything was small steps growing pains uh going to chicago for the first time going to detroit for the first time um getting the relationship with uh pro wrestling noah uh which was which which was crazy for us um once once we uh started moving along a little you know, uh, using guys like uh, Mick Foley and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and and, and getting, you know, Jim Carnette. And things started to happen rap- rapidly. Back back in those days, you know, when you have a crew like CM Punk and Samoa mm-hmm. Joe and Young Colt Cabana and um, Low-Key, um, I'm leaving out a million names here. But these <laughs> were our big Tyler stars. Black and, was you know, there. Tyler, well, right, and you know, but he was a little later. But you know, Spanky early on, and Christopher yeah. Daniels, and and Brian Danielson. How could I leave him out? Um, anyway, we had a good product. I believed in the product, and against all business logic, all business acumen, if that's a word, all mm-hmm. if any, uh, even a, a high school student, let alone a college student. Uh, who is who had a, a basic uh, knowledge of accounting would have told me get rid of this thing. You know, it's uh, it's not a, it, it just didn't make sense. But my passion and my belief in the product and my ego kept it all afloat, and I was able to hold on until we were able to. I was able to finally sell the company because uh, we never made any money. Never. We got killed all the time. <laughs> Um, it's just it's just the way it is. But um, we made it, and uh, we're, here we are. Jesus, 2019. I was going to say 18, 2019, and uh, the company's still going. And it's, it's uh, we had the greatest night of our life a few months ago at Madison Square Garden. But uh, I hope that was a, 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 an abbreviated but semi-complete answer, Nate. No, yeah, that was that was great, and 
And, you know, I became interested in Ring of Honor after the Sinclair purchase. I had watched a little bit on HDNet, but the Sinclair purchase put it at a time when I could actually watch it on the weekends, which was big. And I'm based out of West Virginia, and my first ROH event was the Nightmare Begins uh, in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, now, a lot of people won't remember that, but uh-huh. I remember it vividly. Yes, yes, I was not at that event, but uh, I know no. which event you're talking about. Yes, uh, it, it, I believe it's the only time Ring of Honor has run in uh, the lower part of the state of West Virginia, but that was a great event. I had an absolute blast at this show, and it got me hooked on Ring of Honor. I had watched the match between Davey Richards and Kevin Steen and gotten hooked there from uh, Border Wars. So, and, I, right. and I've watched ever since. How is it that a company with such great talent, and we know it's such great talent now because basically if you're watching you know, the entertainment federations, you're watching Ring of Honor from circa 10 years ago. That's kind of the way I look at it. Um, yeah, how, yeah how you're right. It? And let me just inter- – go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. Get your question. Go ahead. Oh no! I was, oh, I was say, gonna I say. Went, NXT NXT was running down the street for me literally uh, last week, and I reunited with Adam Cole, Roderick Strong, Kyle O'Reilly, Punisher Marti- Punishment Martinez, as as well as Bobby Fish, and there are five ass-kicking Ring of Honor names who are mm-hmm. not even up to the big show yet, you know. And uh, yeah. you put on Monday Night Raw or the other one, and, you know, Kevin Steen, uh, Tyler Black, um, Claudio, uh, yeah, Ryan. Yeah, Claudio Casanova. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, it's, like all my, it's like all my children. But go ahead. What was your question? Which Basically, I what I was going to say is, no, you're fine. Basically, what I was wondering is, how did Ring of Honor basically turn from this small company in the early 2000s with, uh, you know, your, your CM Punk, your Samoa Joe. And now they're basically being used as a feeder system, uh, at least for a while, for WWE to NXT. And now the, the, that's kind of become the, the thing is most a lot of these Ring of Honor stars are being brought to the big time with the big contracts. How did you guys get the notoriety that you gained? Was it all word of mouth or was there more to it than that? There was a certain ethic that, you know, that took place backstage. Um, I attribute a lot of it to Gabe, uh, Gabe Sapolsky, who was the booker up until 2008. And he had a really good eye for talent. I was the, you know, when I became the owner and promoter, uh, it's more like being, I looked at myself probably after the fact, but I realized after everything, you know, you look at things differently years later, but it's like, what was my job? Well, I owned the thing, right? But my job was to be like a a producer. So in other words, when you see a Broadway show or a movie and you see that big title come up, produced by Cecil B. DeMille or produced by Martin Scorsese, right? Um, (laughs) Yes. What did they do? Well, what they did was they got the best lighting people, the best actors, the best script they could, you know, th- that they could have, they thought was the best, and mm-hmm. the best, so on and so forth. You could fill in the blank. So that was my job to try to get the best, you know, Booker, the best wrestlers, um, which 
you know, with the bookers that have were in Ring of Honor, which were a lot, Gabe, Adam Pierce, and currently and still the booker, Delirious, um, mm-hmm. Hunter, uh, and I, I pretty much didn't mess with the talent. In other words, I wouldn't say, oh, we should use so-and-so. Once in a while, I would make a suggestion, but um, there was an ethic backstage of that this was just a quality company, and my job was to make sure everyone got paid. I kept my word, which is not often found in the wrestling business. Um, I was going to say that's a rarity in wrestling. (laughs) Right. So I tried to do the, you know, and the other thing that never gets spoken about, and it has nothing to do with the wrestling, was back in 2004, I brought in, against all logic, but being an old rock and roll guy that I am, I was like, this is a show. This shouldn't just be like an indie show. Let's bring in some lighting. Let's bring in some curtains. Let's make Mm -hmm. this look like something. We're trying to sell DVDs at the time. This is way before HDNet. This is mm-hmm. way before, uh, you know, and, and let's let's have like a rock and roll, a rock and roll ethic. And Gabe, who's who's like a rock and roll guy, you know, he's twenty years younger than me, but nevertheless, he likes to go to shows and stuff. He's like, oh, Carrie, we don't need this, you know, the money. I go anyway. When we finally had, when we finally did it at the Murphy Rec Center, we were able to bring in a lighting rig. It was crazy. It was like a new world. You know, it's like whether you go to see a, a basketball game or mm-hmm. in this day and age or a movie, let alone a concert, what's the first thing that happens when the people pop? The lights go out, right? And yep. the show exactly. starts. So that was, you know, so that added to the whole, uh, the whole aura. And the wrestling itself, you know, whether it was the Samoa Joe punk era, whether it was the Austin Aries uh Tyler Black era, whether it was the Eddie Edwards, Davey Richards era, and of course the Briscoes there the whole damn time, and Jay Lethal, and uh, all these wonderful ass-kicking wrestlers that we were, were blessed to have. There was a, a very good vibe in back the backstage, and it wasn't really one upsmanship, but it was just a community kind of feeling to have the best shows. Even if we were doing a house show, so-called show, a house show at date, didn't matter because we had to sell that DVD. That's where we made our money. So it had mm-hmm. to be a really good show. So, yeah, so um, and that's, I think that's what, you know, I don't know if that's the right answer, but it was just, and that ethic has continued to this day. When I mm-hmm. go, it's still there. There's there's a feeling, you know, the, the current crew we have jumping ahead to 2019 with our world champion, Matt Taven, and guys like um, Brody King and PCO, who, if you would have told me about PCO two years ago, I'd been like, what? But yeah. <laughs> he's fantastic. And, you know, he the, is. You know the, 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 of course, Jay Lethal and Dalton Castle and Marty Scroll and the Briscoes. And um, Mark Haskins, um, guys like Juice Robinson, guys like Zack Sabre Jr., Bandito, Roosh. And it's just a really, really – and um, guys like Vinny Marsalia and T. 
TKO Ryan. It's a really, really good crew. And how can I leave out Bully Ray, who's been a huge addition. Um, Flip Gordon. And that ethic still exists. Absolutely. And, yeah, you jump ahead to 2019. Now you've got the working relationships with major companies all over the world, bringing basically what I'm calling, a lot of people call super indies. But to me, it's more than that. To me, this is a joint effort to bring some of the best wrestling in the world because I watched the G1 Supercard from Madison Square Garden, um, and I'm an Honor Club member, so I made sure I watched it on Honor Club. Um, And my goodness, what a great card, and what a great show it was. What was it like being able to work Madison Square Garden for the first time all these years later and see all these legends, like, you know, you finally see Great Muda and Jushin Thunder Liger both get to work inside Madison Square Garden. What was that feeling like when you said ringside? It was insane because you got to you have to remember, Nate, that I, I'm in New York. You know, I was brought up 45 minutes outside of New York City. So my whole life, has entered a lot of my entertainment life and being a sports guy as well as a rock and roll guy was based out of Madison Square Garden. I mentioned earlier that, you know, my first garden wrestling show was set was 1971. And I used to go with my cousin who was like four years older than me to, uh, he was driving. I wasn't to, uh, you know, every month to the garden, like on a Monday night and uh, for years. And then when I was old enough to go on my own, you know, we would go into the city, me and my friends, it was a different world, but we would go to Led Zeppelin. We'd go to the Grateful Dead. We'd go to every concert. We didn't give a shit if it was Black Sabbath or Elton John. We loved it all. And we would go to the garden, the garden, be in New York City, and to actually think that Ring of Honor, whether it was when I got involved or whether we were doing well in the mid later 2000s or when I, even when I sold it to Sinclair and I was still involved, that we would run the garden it was something we never thought about. So what was it like? It was surreal. It was the greatest night of my life. And I think everybody involves life. Uh, it's something that, you know, may happen, may never happen again. And it may, and that's not to say we won't ever do the garden again, but if we did do the garden again, it will be like the first time. And to have all those guys there. And like you pointed out, you know, to have guys like Muda and these legends and to work with um, New Japan that were such great partners and just to be in that building where I've seen Rangers Stanley Cup games, you know, against the Devils and, you know, uh, huge shows, Paul McCartney and this one and that one. And just, uh, you know, I was there at WrestleMania 1 and there I am, you know, walking out at the opening like I do. And it was, I was so damn nervous and people all day, all week when I was in the city for like three days, I kept saying to everyone, I'm so nervous. They're like, why? I'm like, what do you mean? Why? We're at Madison Square Garden. I wasn't worried about the show. I'm just worried that, you know, I'm going to walk out there. I'm going to trip at ringside or, or whatever, but that didn't happen. And uh, once the show got started, it was like any other ring of honor show. And I felt really comfortable, and we delivered, and it was just a magic night. The people were in it every second. Uh, it was, wasn't really, this is a ballsy statement, but it was really wasn't much different than when I was at WrestleMania 1. 
where everyone was in it every second. The oh, bands yeah. were just in this thing. It was it was like a Metallica concert in 1990. It was crazy. Yeah. So it was a be- it was a beautiful experience, and uh, who knows? Maybe we could do it again. And if we don't, we still have a great company and the best wrestling on the planet. It's a very interesting climate in pro wrestling right now. My buddies, uh, my beloved friends, the Young Bucks, are have their show this weekend out in Vegas. Mm-hmm. I wish mm-hmm. them the best. You know, there's good opportunities for people in wrestling now that didn't exist uh, even a few years ago. Um, there's a lot of companies that are doing things, you know, Major League Wrestling, you know, Impact's hanging in there and so on and so forth. And uh, it's a good time to be a wrestling fan. Yeah, and not only are there these bigger companies sprouting up, there's still the small independent companies all over the world and all over, you know, from you know, all the New Yorks and, you know, Things like that, all Everywhere. the way down to here, where where I live in West Virginia. You know, I work. I'm a. I do play by play for uh, a local company, and we've had a lot of Ring of Honor stars come through. I know uh, Davey Richards has wrestled for us back when he was in Ring of Honor. Kyle O'Reilly, Michael Elgin, when he was there, um, right just a on. lot of stars. Jay Lethal, uh, guys like that. Um, Rhett Titus came through, and and man, his Rhett Titus looked built now. But that's the oh, thing, like wrestling. I can't believe how Red Titus looks now, but that's the thing is these companies banding together, just like you guys did with the NWA at the Crockett Cup. And speaking of PCO, how about still on the show there? PCO, my goodness. Holy, and what a holy. Great, what a great show that was, too. Watch that one as well. So I'm really yeah. enjoying what Ring of Honor is doing. And, and how was that perception-wise, the NWA Crockett Cup show? How did that come off for Ring of Honor? I think it came off great. And, you know, uh, granted, I'm an old school fan. So I'll, I, I remember the day that uh, Billy Corgan and uh, who, who, of course, has his, you know, his working his sidekicks, not the right word, but his general manager, let's say, Dave Lagana, when they bought NWA yeah. uh, and, and people were knocking the hell out of it. You know, and I remember talking to Lagana. Lagana was a huge help with Ring of Honor behind the scenes back in 2009 when we had the HD Net deal. Um, he came in and helped, and uh, he's a very bright guy. And at the time, um, you know, people were knocking it. Oh, what's the NWA these days? But uh, they they built it up slowly. And Billy Corgan's a really cool guy. You know, I've got to, I've got to know him a little bit, and. Uh, it's uh, that was a really neat show, you know. It's a, yes, there's nostalgia involved, no doubt about it. But what's wrong with that? And uh, not only is there nostalgia, there's uh, you know the current day NWA with Nick Aldis and Willie Mack, and you know Colt Cabana's got a, a belt, uh, a title there now, and it, it, it's it's a good company, and it's it's just another uh, it's another branch if that's the right word, it's just another company that could uh, partner with, with ROH. And it just, uh, it makes everyone stronger, I believe. Yeah, I believe it does as well. And uh, yeah, Cabana won. I actually just met Cabana. He did a local indie show down here in my area and uh, you brought him up and we've had Ian Riccoboni, the voice of ring of honor on our show before talking Philadelphia 76ers basketball. Yes, uh, my it, man, he lives down the street from me. He's a good boy. He, he's fantastic, honestly. I think he's one of the best voices in the game today, and this is coming from a guy who, you know, I, I love Kevin Kelly, 
in Ring of Honor. Uh, but I think Rick Abani does a great job, and I, I will pat him on the back anytime I get the chance. And I think that's a great – he does a great job, and he knows his stuff. He does, you know, and he's uh, – for a young guy, like I'm, I'm, I, he's, he's, uh, he's 30-something, I don't know, 32, 33. He's very knowledgeable, not just about wrestling, but like you said, he's a huge basketball fan. He's a huge Phillies fan. He's just a huge baseball fan, and he's a huge music fan too, you know. I uh, – I go back to these classic rock bands that I mentioned. That he's uh, he's got a very uh, broad knowledge of things, and uh, he's a great commentator for ROH. He told yeah. about uh, go, coming in under fire. You know, Kevin Kelly sort of uh, powdered out on us suddenly at the time, and uh, Ian stepped right in there. It wasn't easy, but uh, I don't know. you know, he uh, he did it. He did it, and uh, here he is now. And you know, Cabana is uh, has made for a great color man, and uh, Caprice Coleman helps out, and uh, we have a good crew. We we have a really good crew, and I'm looking forward to this year. Um, it's going to be an interesting year. It's going to be an exciting year. We have that big show coming up. I'm not looking at a computer. I'm not looking at the date. I believe it's August 11th or something like that. But whatever WWE is doing SummerSlam in Toronto, Ring of Honor, New Japan, and NWA are teaming up for a show in Toronto, which will wow. be a pay-per-view event. And uh, I should have been better prepared. Sorry, but no, you can look fine. online. And it's, it, 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 but, yeah, so we're going to be in Toronto and, uh, that will be we all, that will be August ninth. August ninth. Thank you, thank you. Not uh, a problem. I don't know if these dates are going to be right. Maybe you could double check me, but uh, I know we're going to be in for our first time in the Northwest, Everett, Washington, and Portland. Um, I don't know when this is going to air, but next weekend, June first and second, or May thirtieth and June first, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um. And then uh, we'll be in Baltimore, I think, on the 29th for a pay-per-view. 28th. 28th is best in the well, world. Thank you. Thank you. Best in the world. Not just a pay-per-view, best in the world. And then on the following day is at the old, good old ECW slash uh, 2300 Arena in Philly. Yeah. Uh, there's some TV tapings. And we're going to be back in New York City. On July uh, uh, 20th. Uh, what is it? There you 20th. go. The 20th at, at the Hammerstein. And the next day, I think we're in uh, Lynn, Massachusetts or Lowell. somewhere like that. Lowell. There you go. And uh, then the Toronto shows. So there's a lot of exciting Ring of Honor action. You can catch us on the Sinclair, uh, most on all the Sinclair network uh, affiliates which are now up to like 170 and uh, Sinclair's got a lot of good things going on. Um, I think we'll be uh, nationwide very shortly as well. And if you don't get a Sinclair uh, station, you could watch ring of honor uh, on the honor club online. Uh, it's very yes, reasonably and priced. I will recommend honor club to anybody out there. I purchased it this year for the first time. I bought the VIP package and it is worth, double what I paid for it. So please, if you're not, if you're a ring of honor fan, go out, purchase honor club. Well worth the price. There's plenty of content. You know, you, any of your listeners uh, who heard this, who maybe aren't as familiar with the product or have just 
you know, not everyone is, uh, you know, if you're even, I I tell people, even if you like wrestling just a tiny bit, if this was Mm -hmm. on video, you'd see me taking my two fingers like a tiny bit, little, little bit. (laughs) You put on a good Ring of Honor match and you're going to really say, wow, this this is some good stuff. So thank you very much, my man. I I appreciate you uh, taking some time with me and uh, hopefully I will see you down the road somewhere. Well, I hope to be in Philadelphia in uh, July sometime. If I'm uh, through that area visiting my good friend uh, T.R., Tom Robinson, uh, maybe we can all grab a there beer or something to eat. There you go. Right on. Well, thank you, man. Right. And uh, I thank will you, speak sir. to you soon. Can't wait. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Was that all right? Yeah, it was great. Thank you so uh, much. I really do appreciate uh, it. It yeah. was fantastic. And, uh nope. I know I was being I, very uh, jumping around, trying to be concise and, and going no, over giant fine. gaps there. But, you know, that's the only way you could, I could jam yeah. in. Uh, oh, you uh, could talk for days about years. Ring of Honor. I understand. Right. I understand. Yes. Uh, I, well, listen, and it's, man, it's, let me know when this comes out so I can uh, I will. Get, get push it for you. And uh, I'm glad we finally got to talk. Thank you very much. Oh, not a problem. Me too. And I really do appreciate everything you've done. And uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Ring of Honor, so this means a lot to me. So thank you very much. Uh, no sweat, brother. Take care, dude. Tell Tom I said hello. I will. I will. Thank you. You're welcome. And that was my conversation with Carrie Silken from Ring of Honor, the Ring of Honor ambassador, former owner of Ring of Honor. And Carrie dived a lot into a, a lot of the guys that Ring of Honor has brought up and a lot of uh, things about Ring of Honor, especially looking forward to the future with Ring of Honor. So uh, we wish Ring of Honor all the best of luck. I really enjoy the product myself. So getting to talk to Carrie was a uh, was really cool for me. Yeah, that, those indie, uh, we, we need those indie, uh, whether you like them or hate them, we need those uh, mid-sized indie companies and up have got to survive or else, uh, you know, there's there's no talent, really. Absolutely not. Absolutely so, not. you got to have a farm <coughs> Like minor yeah, league baseball. Indeed. Like minor league baseball and, and the NBA G League and, and stuff like that. So it, it's very important that we have those systems in place. And, and if you watch WWE television right now, you're watching a lot of, of ring of former ring of honor stars. I mean, and that's just the way it is. And they don't, they don't make a point of ever telling anybody that, of course, but if you, you know, go, go to your computer and look some of these guys up, Daniel, you'll find out that Daniel, a lot I mean, of them you look at there. it. You look at it. Uh, the, the Viking Raiders, they were ring of honor. Uh, Adam Cole, Daniel Bryan, Seth Rollins, um, just the names, the list goes on and on. Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, uh, just so many names there that went through Ring of Honor. AJ Styles was there. Uh, just so many great talents went through there. But uh, anyway, speaking of great talents, uh, a man who's a great talent in the courtroom, Mr. Stephen P. New. He's our wonderful sponsor. So Tim and I was able to talk to Stephen P. New and not only does he sponsor us, he sponsors Jim Cornish drive through We'll give a plug there. We have no hate towards any other podcast. So uh, check it out. 
Steve's great work. Steve's a great lawyer here in West Virginia. And he came on and he talked about the recent AEW pay-per-view and everything in between in the current state of pro wrestling. Tim and I had a chance to sit down with Steve. What, what do you think of our conversation with Steve? You know, it's another one of those ones where I had talked briefly to Steve before on the show, but it's always been in kind of that uh, a controlled environment of this is what we're talking about. And, you know, you, you get your 10-second question and you get the 14-second answer and that's pretty much it, right? Yeah, never, I have never, honestly, never come across a guy who I knew was a lawyer, and not only a lawyer, but a hotshot lawyer, and I say that in the nicest of ways, um, who was, his ability to turn that off and just talk like a, you know, you, you feel like you're sitting on a couch talking to a regular dude about whatever he thought about whatever you were talking about. And yeah. And he answered the questions in a way, you know, he didn't, he, he never even ducked, give it a little bit behind the curtain. We asked him some things behind the scenes. He didn't duck any of those either. Uh, Absolutely not. Answers. He gave us answers for everything we wanted. He never left anything ambiguous. And he even, uh, he even got a couple of singers in there on top of it all. So oh, definitely. It, was, it was a great time. I, I enjoyed it uh, very much. Yeah, I did as well. And, and people are probably sitting here going, this is a wrestling podcast. Why are you interviewing a lawyer from West Virginia about pro wrestling? I, I just wanted to bring up that, that people probably don't know this, but is there ever a source maybe better for pro wrestling than the wrestling fan? I mean, pro wrestling historians are fans. Steve might as well be a pro wrestling historian. He knows his stuff. Oh, he's, yeah. a, he's a wrestling fanatic. He also like sponsors some independent work. He does. And, he does. He sponsors All Star Wrestling in his here local in Madison, area. Keeping the, so he's he's doing his bit to pay it forward without. And well, I guess the other we can't talk about the other thing, can we? No, not not quite yet. It's, it's not something that we can really bring up. But right, we did but, discuss. But let's let's just let's leave it at that. That Mister New is involved in different facets of the wrestling industry and uh he he's, he's he does his more than his share so, absolutely yeah, and he, and he knows these people. he knows these people he knows these guys and he's very close inside the business and steve is the kind of guy who absolutely just knows his stuff when it comes to pro wrestling and we're thankful he's a sponsor and we're thankful he's a friend of ours here at the show and he does great things uh, in pro wrestling for us and as a lawyer all over the world. So thanks, Steve, so much for doing what you do. And before we get into our conversation with Steve, we're going to leave you heading into that with the new law office commercial because he's deserved it. So here is a word from our sponsor, Stephen P. New. Personal injury, product liability, workplace accidents, mesothelioma law, social security disability, unfair insurance practices, family law, employment discrimination, and more. All this can be handled at New Law Office with Stephen P. New. It's New Law Office with Stephen P. New. You can get your free consultation today by calling 1-800-208-9169 or 304-362-7345 for your free consultation. 
a new level of personal service. Whether you've been injured or facing divorce or experiencing workplace discrimination, you can rely on compassionate, thorough representation from New Law Office. Be sure to contact Stephen P. New Law Office at newlawoffice.com or again get your free consultation at 1-800-203-9169. Stephen P. New, answers to your legal questions. Joining us live on the show is not only a wrestling aficionado and a man who I consider a, a good friend, he's also the sponsor of the program, Wide Men Can't Jump, whether we're talking basketball, wrestling, or anything else. Our good buddy, Stephen P. New from New Law Office. Thanks, Steve, for jumping on. We're going to talk a little pro wrestling here. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to talking some pro wrestling with you guys. We can't wait. So... We're going to talk a little bit about the Double or Nothing pay-per-view. So I'm assuming you, like everyone else, uh, tuned in to see it was a pretty historic occasion. What were your thoughts? What were your thoughts on Double or Nothing? How did you feel watching it as a fan? As a fan, I thought uh, overall uh, I would give it uh, an A for a pay-per-view, and I have commented publicly and to a lot of my close friends that I thought as a pay-per-view, it was as good as any WWE non-Big Four pay-per-view that I have seen in the last 10 years. And so I thought it was fantastic. I thought it set up a lot of storylines yet to come in AEW. And more important than that, introduce sort of that brand of wrestling and those stars to people who are may not be familiar with talents like the Young Bucks or Kenny Omega or uh, some of the Japanese wrestlers, uh, you know, some of the luchadors, uh, you know, I just thought it was fantastic top to bottom. Uh, I even thought the, the underneath stuff uh, was good. I didn't care for the Battle Royal, but it was a Battle Royal. It did what it was supposed to do as far as putting the hangman where he needed to be. So I, all in all, I was real pleased. Yeah, Tim and I both uh, weren't big fans of the Battle Royal. Um, we felt that too much gaga, too much silliness in the Battle Royal. Um, and there was some guys in there that I, I had a hard time taking seriously. Um, now, we, we did have some guys in the Battle Royal we liked. Uh, MJF, I absolutely loved him. Uh, I thought he did great work in the ring. I actually liked, even though the gimmick may be a little silly, I was a big fan of Luchasaurus. Um, of course, Brian Pillman Jr., we've worked with him here in uh, West Virginia a couple times. He's a great kid, and I'm looking forward to great things for him. Yep. Uh, but overall, I felt the and battle royale. The I'm name like is stupid. The name is stupid, but I'm telling you, Luke Perry's son is going to be money in the future. If he stays healthy, he's got a great look. If he puts on a little bit of weight and a little bit of body mass, uh, you know, and they need to get him out of the Jungle Boy uh, gimmick. But I'm telling you, I think Luke Perry's son uh, has a lot of upside. Well, see, you just taught me something. I had no clue that was Luke Perry's son, Jungle Boy. I really did not. Tim, did you know that? 
them. Then you can you can look at those sideburns. That what you're showing is that you were not alive in 1990, and well, because if anyone year. had seen, <laughs> <laughs> well, look at you. There was a Stephen P. New is giving it to you now, sir. I love it. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm telling you that, that there was this little zip code that was really popular in 1990 <laughs> called 90210. And if anybody had been alive during that time and saw Jungle Boy's sideburns, they knew exactly who his daddy was. Uh, it, it, Luke Perry wouldn't have passed the old uh, DNA tests. Uh, when all you did was come to court and hold the baby up beside the father's head, he couldn't deny that. He couldn't deny Jungle Boy. Well, well see, I might as well. I, I, better get in line for, uh, I better get in line for my tongue lashing because I believe I'm older than Mr. New, and I didn't make that connection. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, <laughs> suitably baptized up here in Canada, sir. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, and and probably to to his credit, he is trying not to just trade off of his father's mm-hmm. name. You know, for for Brian Pillman Jr., you know, he 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 has that name, and and that's fine, and you know everything that comes along with that. But you know, I mean, uh, kudos to Jungle Boy for not just wanting to trade off of his father's name. Uh, he is one also along with uh, MJF, and I I have said this. I met MJF up at the MLW event in New York on WrestleMania weekend. I think that he will be the hottest commodity in wrestling in about two years. You know, AEW doesn't lock him under a long-term contract. He was not hard to dislike. He was playing some (laughs) serious... No, I mean, he had that angle down. I mean, he, he was drawing some pretty good heel heat for a guy that a lot of people there barely knew who he was. Exactly. And I thought the promo he cut on Bret Hart was just fantastic. It, it was. I'm a, uh, I'm a big Bret Hart fan, but, uh, you know, even I had to go, man. That's some good That's some good heel promo. It made me mad, and and, you know, we like to think, you know, because you know, you and I, Steve, have worked inside the business and been around and know what's going on. We're in the loop a lot, but man, oh man, even I got a little upset at some of those comments. I'm like, man, come on, that's Brad Hart you're talking about. So, if you're able to work the guys that know it to work, I think you're doing a good job. Yeah, yeah. He MJF. He on a personal level too. I met him. He is a a very nice young man. Uh, He's just fantastic, uh, and he's been dedicated to this business. He was on the Rosie O'Donnell show as like a five- or six-year-old child, and when she asked him, and he was like one of those guests in the audience or something like that, she asked him, what uh, do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, I want to be a professional wrestler. Wow. That's insane. I, I never knew yeah. that either. Steve New is dropping knowledge yeah, here it, on this phone. If you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> this is great stuff. Um, I do want to say though, you know, outside of the Battle Royal, um, I thought there was some great stars that that not a lot of people knew on the show. Um, the Japanese six woman tag match 
that was an introduction to a different style of wrestling. And of course, you know, I, and to me, it was an excuse to get Aja Kong on the show, which, I mean, people aren't going to really get mad about that because Aja Kong is definitely a uh, she, she's, she's a, a living a legend. Absolutely. Well, they're yeah. they're setting that up for a, a awesome Kong Kong confrontation, I would assume. I mean, there's a possibility of that, but you know, and you look at the the cards. Mm-hmm. The Fatal Four Way, the the women did great. I thought all four ladies brought it pretty well. Um, and you know, you mentioned the Young Bucks, Steve. I'm going to go to their match real quick. I, I the match was entertaining, but did I personally felt it was a little high spotty. Not a great tag team story. Of course, you know, I grew up watching the old school tag team wrestling with where I'm from. What was your thoughts on on that old that tag match with the Young Bucks and Pentagon Junior and Ray Phoenix? Because I liked the match, but I felt it was a little too much, and they were doing too much, and I just miss when finishers finished a match. Given who the opponents were, I expected that type of match. I did not expect a Midnight versus Rock and Roll, uh, Andersons versus, you know, whomever NWA-style tag team wrestling match when, when that match got booked. Uh, I just, I did not, so not expecting that kind of match, it did not surprise me to see that it was all high spotty and, uh, you know, not telling the traditional sort of uh, tag team story. And, you know, they've got this rule in AEW about uh, the 10-second the count out, you know, for the for the tagged-out wrestler to go to the outside of the ring. <laughs> which lent itself towards the kind of things that they were doing uh, in that match. So I won't go so far as to say that I was disappointed. I, I was not, and, and I thought it you know, that they had the opportunity to display a lot of their talents and things like that. I didn't have any expectations whatsoever that they were going to do anything other than what they did, Nathan. Very true, very true. Tim, you got any questions for Steve here? I've been kind of hogging the mic. I, well, I got, a, I got, a, I got a million. I just don't know how many of them I can ask. That's all. <laughs> you can't get free. You can ask anything you want. Doesn't mean that yeah. I'm going to answer to you. Yeah, so, counsel, uh, counsel will decline to answer <laughs> if they don't. <laughs> I, 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 okay, let's let's go to the let's go to the big scope of that pay per view. So now, the kind of the the uh, the shots have been fired, I guess, over the bow. One could say. Uh, WWE had always kind of been of the opinion that uh, there really wasn't anybody that could pull that off. Now somebody's pulled it off, and the, their response was, uh, well, I'm not sure what their response was because their TV on Monday and Tuesday was absolutely horrific. Um, oh, do you think? Do you really think? I mean, we're of the opinion that Vince McMahon really just doesn't care. He has enough money from the TV deal. And I don't believe he does. Let me tell you who I think may care. If WWE, as a a holder of a large number of shares of WWE stock, we shareholders care about the WWE product and what they're doing because the stock's already gotten juiced from the Fox deal. That's what sent it up to almost uh, $100 a share, 
just a few months ago when the Fox deal was announced. It's backed off. WWE was trading at $72 today, and it seems like every time there's one of these Saudi Arabia events, the stock price suffers. So I think McMahon may not care, but I believe that the shareholders are going to care if they keep putting this garbage product out on Monday night and whatever night SmackDown is going to on Fox, and there's not some real answering of the bell by WWE to this excitement that AEW is uh, bringing along. And let me ask this, Tim, before you, before you ask another question. With with that deal with Fox, is there is there is there not a clause in the contract? I don't know if you would know this right offhand, Steve. I know you're you know, as a stockholder, maybe you know a little more than we do. In that contract, is there a a clause that says Fox, if Fox cancels the program or it's not pulling its weight? Uh, for SmackDown, that they can cancel that deal and force WWE to pay any of that back? Is there a clause like that in that deal? You know, I don't know. I don't know whether there is a clawback provision or not. But as a publicly traded corporation, the next time WWE has to file that stuff uh, with their, their SEC filings, uh, with the Securities Exchange Commission, the the terms of the Fox deal will have to be out there. Okay, so what? So then that would also apply to this, or what I consider to be this outrageous rumor that Vince McMahon and the AEW are somehow in cahoots behind the scenes. I I don't I don't believe. Uh, that if they were they they would open themselves up to a horrible uh, all of the all of the then you know if if you think that Impact ROH MLW um, New Japan are you know smaller yet well known promotions uh, AEW and WWE would be exposed to huge liability if they were, as Vince Russo said, in bed together. Uh, I mean, the first thing I would do if I were those other four is sue the pants off those two billionaires for conspiring to control the wrestling business. Well, if that is the case, then uh, if you're listening out there, you know the guy to call for that. Did you, did you, <laughs> there, or did you notice there, Nate, that the, the absolute stupidity of that question Almost silence, Mr. New. Almost. <laughs> no. Well, well, it was, I, it was, wanna... I mean, it was ridiculous when he brought it up, and he's still, today, he's still insisting that that's the fact. And I don't know if Vince Russo has went from very little credibility to none, in my opinion. But Well, you're talking to a guy who's no, talking what, to what you're seeing him try to do is go from, what you're seeing him try to do is go from absolute irrelevance to borderline relevance is what you're seeing him try to yeah, do. Absolutely. Right, absolutely. Him, uh, moving on. Well, I do want to bring up, uh, Mr. New, uh, the John Moxley, Chris Jericho interview that came out. Have you had a chance to listen to that yet? I have had a chance to listen to that. 
Well, well, give give us some of your thoughts on that. What do you think about that interview? Because that well, seems to be blowing up the internet right now. I remember thinking at the time when when Dean Ambrose did the heel turn on the night of Roman's diagnosis reveal. I remember thinking in the weeks after that how uncomfortable those stupid vignettes about him getting shots to get immunized, uh, wearing the gas mask, and all of that garbage seemed. I mean, and it turns out that while doing it or before doing it when he was given the script – Dean Ambrose thought the same thing that we thought uh, as he was doing it. What, what, what did I do to deserve this? Well, <laughs> exactly. He, I, I mean, he's... Go, he go ahead. Out and, oh, I was going to say, he came out and said that he has comedic timing. And he made a big mistake by showing the WWE, that he has comedic timing. And by doing that, then they tried to pigeonhole him as a comedy act, and it didn't work. And that's just because if you don't know Vince McMahon, and this has been proven on on everybody's podcast, I don't care who you believe, whether it be uh, the esteemed Mr. Jim Cornette, who Steve is a proud sponsor of the drive-thru, Bruce Pritchard, Jim Roth, anybody, Vince loves the ridiculous toilet humor he's always loved it and it's probably gotten worse over the years especially as he gets into older age because you know how as you get older i guess maybe your sense of humor might change a little bit uh and his is intensified apparently and dean said or john moxley said that that was his big mistake what are your guys thoughts on that statement of showing comedic timing is actually a detriment now in wwe You know, let me tell you what I think of it. It's micromanagement. That you know, John Moxley, Dean Ambrose, he knows himself. What the interview revealed to me is how little control the talent has in their own characters, how they do their interviews, you know, what they know their strengths to be, what they need their their weaknesses that they need to improve upon uh, and things like that. Vince McMahon believes that he knows better uh, for everybody. And it's only been the the rare instances of serendipity in the last 10 to 15 years that anybody's gotten over. Punk got himself over. Uh, Daniel Bryan got himself over. Do you, does anybody honestly think for a minute that Vince McMahon would have had an idea like the Yes Movement, let alone that a guy Daniel Bryan's size would get over with it? Heck no, he would oh, never allow anything no, like never. that. Yet he's going. Yet he's going to push Lars Sullivan down our throats and and bury three talented luchadors. Yeah, and that and that's the game plan with, with a guy like that. Vince is. I don't want to say that he – it's almost like he's reverting back to that 80s way of thinking, uh, if I can say that, where the, the big guys and the, the, doesn't really care about the quality of the match. 
it's all about the larger-than-life personas, but we're living in a day and age where that's not what the audience wants. You know, you right now, you couldn't put, you know, Terry the Hulk boulder out in the in front of people and have people go, ooh, look at him. That's not what's going to work now. People are going to look at him and go, okay, but can he work? Because now match quality matters well, more in this day and age than it ever has. You've got to take that even a step further, though. WWE, they take a guy, like right now the big one was what, uh, what's his name, Ethan Carter, I believe, EC3. Yeah. They throw him, right. they throw him, they throw him out there with Moxley and bury him. And then two weeks later, they go, well, we don't really have anything for him because it, it, nobody liked him. Well, you buried him, you fools. Of course nobody liked him. You put him out there in a, uh, in a baby face against the guy who you're trying to make a heel who everybody likes, and you can't figure out why he doesn't get over. Well, you didn't right. give him a chance it to was get bad. over. It was bad booking, you know, for right. the same reason that Kenny didn't get over as Dr. Isaac Yankum, you idiots. <laughs> it is how they are booked and the gimmicks that they have, right? not so, the talent. Glenn Jacobs was money. <laughs> you know, he was money. But he wasn't money as Dr. Isaac Yankum, and he wasn't money as the fake Diesel. Well, that was the whole thing. But give him a good gimmick and turn him loose, and and he can be good. Same with EC3, the the revival. Uh, you you got a bunch of young talent there uh, that they're wasting. Well, but then they, they do it in a way, too, though, where, like I was telling Nate earlier, it's kind of like network television. They put a new show out, and if the first two weeks it doesn't draw 20 million viewers, they yank it. You know, they don't give anybody a chance to warm up to the guy and let him do whatever it is he's going to do and give him a story and a little bit of psychology and what's this guy all about. They don't do that anymore. They just, okay. You you realize that Cheers wasn't a hit until about three years in, and Friends wasn't a hit until the second season. Fraser, MASH. A lot of big, big, big shows. They, they, I mean, it takes a while for people. There's so right. much to choose from. You know, give me a chance to like the guy or hate him, as the case may be. And, and another thing is, it's just the blandness of everything. Because not only are you getting writers who have never been in a wrestling ring, took a bump, work behind the scenes. All they've ever done is wrote television. So they're they're resorting to what they know and that's writing television. Whereas wrestling oh, is no, not it's writing worse than that. Well, true. But wrestling is not like that. Wrestling is is an art form and if you're not talking to the talent about what they're talking about or what they're doing, like I understand some of those guys in the back may need help with their promos. But there's guys back there that have absolutely no need for people to tell them what to say. You should just say, okay, talk about so-and-so. Here's, here's what's coming up. Here's what we, an idea of what we want. Go do it. And if you don't like what they're doing, tell them. That's just how it should be. Go ahead, Steve. Right. <clears throat> you, you've got, you, you know who's on the creative team now, right? Dewey Foley. Yeah, Mick I knew Foley's Dewey was. son in his early 20s. And Dana Warrior. I'm sorry. I don't think either of the two of them know the first thing about booking a match or or being creative. 
Yeah, and they're taking the... Go ahead, Tim. I'm sorry. I've often wondered from a business standpoint why somebody doesn't say, look, why do we pay... Like, the rumor is that there's, what, approximately 30 writers? I've heard that that number kind of kicked around, or 20. Like, why why do we... Why do we pay, you know, and I don't imagine they get paid fairly well, you know, why are we paying all these guys when they don't really do anything? You know, Vince, sounds like Vince pretty much still writes everything. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but all I can say is creative. creatively, it used to be three guys, including Vince. Whether it was Pritchard and Cornette, Cornette and Russo, Ferrar and Russo, and then WCW had this J- issue back JR in the early. somewhere in the mix. There. Yeah, Jr. Yeah, uh, you didn't. WCW ran into this problem back in the early '90s when they had this big creative team, and it was like Cornette was on it, Flair, uh, Eddie Graham, uh, Dusty was gone, Gary Hart, Paul Ellering. Yeah, yeah, and these are all brilliant minds in pro wrestling who have all successfully booked themselves elsewhere. But you get too many cooks in the kitchen and you're going to end up with, okay, we need to add this spice and this spice and we need to do this. No, this guy needs this. This needs to do this. And eventually it all just becomes watered down, overbearing, and nobody has a clue what's going on. Would it not be like being a lawyer where if you take on a case, you usually have a head lawyer who stirs the boat? in whatever direction you're going to take this litigation. You don't have 10 guys running off doing whatever, right? There's always somebody in charge. Well, that, that, is, that is exactly correct. There has to be lead counsel, you know, because at, at the end of the day, uh, despite what the public may think, only one lawyer can talk in court at a time. And so – uh, you know, at times, and then but the behind the scenes of it is, yeah, you've got to have lead counsel who says, hey, based on my experience and based on what I know, and I've, I've listened to all the ideas and, you know, listened to the competing ideas and interests and taken all that into consideration, this is the final decision. Now, when WWE was a privately held company, instead of a publicly traded corporation, that was easier to do because, you know, Vince was the man. And like Nathan said, a much smaller booking committee, there there may be three, you know, two plus Vince with everybody knowing Vince is the boss and he's going to get the final say. Uh, much easier to control and to run at that point than if you're trying to do this uh, booking by committee stuff or in WWE's creative by committee, which if, if you listen to John Moxley talk, it sounded like their job was more what I imagine working in the White House is like right now, where you're just trying to keep the crazy old man from doing something really, really bad <laughs> or stupid. So how can we either distract him with some boobs or something, you know, so that Moxley doesn't have to go out there and make some cancer joke? At his friend's expense, two weeks after he's been re-diagnosed. Well, he, I mean, he he did say that he really didn't know, after working there for eight years, that he really didn't know what the process was even today of how anything really worked. It just kind of happened. Guys running, you know, they would get he would get there and they'd hand him something, and if he didn't like it, 
then you would spend the rest of the day trying to get it changed, which right. seems like a, seems like a very strange way to do business when you have to multiply that by you know twenty guys. Yeah, and you're looking. But that at goes to your point, Tim. What, uh, your point is: what are these twenty or thirty or however many people doing? It seems to me that they're running interference for Vince or try, or or negotiating between Vince and the talent. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I if you know. go and if you want to talk to Vince, apparently uh, it takes hours upon hours. So you spend most of your day trying to figure out what you're going to get done, and by the time you figure out what's going to happen, whether your say so in it is going to change or not, you're exhausted, and now you got to go cut promos and, and go. The ring, but it's it kind of speaks to the character of Vince McMahon in a way, because I I mean I have my own business once upon a time, and I would say for for Mister New as well. I mean if you were at work, Steve, and every two minutes uh, a clerk was knocking on your door with some ridiculous question, how long would it take before you said you know this is not for I, I don't want to deal with this stuff. There's a guy below me on the hierarchy that can deal with these things. Quit bugging me. Whereas Vince seems to be the opposite of that, where he wants to be involved in these tiny little things where he probably has much better things to be doing or should have better things to be doing, running a, a billionaire, or, you know, what he does for a living. The, the best analogy that I can give it, Tim, is I spent 20 years in the United States Army. I retired okay. as a major. I was an armor officer in charge of tanks. And we had colonels who seemed to get off micromanaging uh, privates and sergeants and lieutenants when all they needed to do was trust that their captains and lieutenants were doing what they wanted done. You know, you are the commander of an armor unit. You say what your intent is. You tell the boys what the mission is, and, you know, the, the United States Army has a plan for that, all right? And it's it, – and the way that that goes is you as a commander say, hey, I, I want to do this. I want to take that objective over there. And then your staff puts together three plans for you with advantages and disadvantages – and then they come back to you, you as the commander, because you are the commander, you are the colonel or the general. You Guess what? The beauty of that is rank has its privileges. You get to pick, you know. You get well, to pick which, which of those three. Are the terms uh, chain, and, chain of command would be, would be appropriate? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and then you once you pick as a commander, you turn the underlings loose to accomplish your intent. You don't micromanage how those guys are doing it because you, you just undercut their authority as, as officers and as leaders and as non-commissioned officers. So, But we absolutely, in, in my time in the West Virginia National Guard, we had generals and colonels who absolutely loved, got off on micromanaging even the finest of detail. They wanted to know, they wanted to make sure you used a certain color of ink in the pen that you wrote things down with, that, like stuff like that. 
That's exactly that's exactly right. They wanted to know how Private Snuffy was shining. Have you have you been lucky enough to watch Catch Twenty Two, the that series that's just been on about the Air Force in Italy? I have not. It's kind of the same sort of story where, uh, without getting into it too far, the guy's a. a, 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 a What's the technical term? He drops the bombs. He's the bombardier, and he his missions are he he keeps they keep upping the mission limit. He gets close to being where he should get sent home, and somebody the, the the commander says, "Well, you know, we're doing such a bang up job here. Everybody needs to do five more missions." You know, not realizing that he's you know these guys have already made enough sacrifice. It's kind of somebody else's turn. But it's basically what the show is about: how the uh, the upper, you know, it only takes one guy, and the uh, I think the guy's a colonel. And he's just batshit crazy, and how he affects right. all these, how he affects all these other guys with these crazy things. But he's not the one who ever has to go carry him out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, Steve, before we let you go, I know you're going to see the Who. Is Rebecca going with you tonight? Uh, actually, she uh, la- sort of last minute within the last few days here. Uh, she has three really close friends who are exchange students, and uh-huh. they all decided to have a big going-away party tonight. So it's me and my best friend growing up from Gilbert Howard Sammons, who's a lawyer in Charleston, Uh-oh. and we're going to go see The Who tonight. That sounds great. But uh, I do want, I wanted to bring up the, the ASW anniversary show a couple months ago, um, you know, with the the proclamations with Tracy Smothers and Bobby Fulton and the destruction of those beautiful Bob's Burgers artworks that, oh my goodness, I'm on commentary and I couldn't believe my eyes what I saw. Even I don't know uh, and, and Tim, Steve jumped in and counted the one, two, three once Brian Logan got yeah, taken yeah. down. I read, a, I read about this actually, yeah. It, yeah, yeah but uh, Brian Logan got taken out, and then Bobby Fulton and his one good eye schoolboy, uh, Tracy Smothers, there. And Cornette <laughs> said, Count it. You can see me looking for a few seconds there. Like, what? Cornette yeah. goes, Count him. Damn it. And I was, okay, okay, Jim. <laughs> one, two, three. We, we've got the. Uh... <laughs> We've got the footage on the ASW DVDs. Uh, we we have that footage, so I'll have to uh, see Tim. I'll have to to clip has, that for uh, you and send it to you. Has uh, because, Jim's show dropped today yet? Yes, it's out. Uh, okay, the I'm line for his AEW commentary. The line of the week, though, uh, for that was Tracy Smothers looks at Bobby Fulton and says, "Which one's your good eye?" And Bobby <laughs> tells him, and Tracy yeah. just pokes. Right in. That's just old school heel work done to perfection. It you should have seen it. And backstage, yeah, you've been uh, having trouble in your left eye, Bobby. Yeah, boom, he pokes him in his right eye. <laughs> Have a little more. <laughs> backstage, though, the the Steve brought the. Uh, a lot of the legislatures in and everything. Cornette was there, and if there was one Republican in the bunch, and we're not going to talk politics, but man, oh man, was that not entertaining hearing Cornette go off on those guys on that one oh, Republican? Really? And some stupid commentator, yeah, it, it, <laughs> some stupid commentator snuck downstairs. And uh, Dave Allen, if you're listening, sorry for letting Cornette know you were also a Republican in the Secretary of State's office. So. Uh, <laughs> 
Jimmy, Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy Fallon had, had to eat a little bit of crap there. He did. He did. I threw him under the bus and then immediately left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, Blue Falcon, Nathan will never let you down there, Blue Falcon. Way That's to go. Right. That's right. Is, is Jimmy really? How much of that is, or, or if anyone's willing to answer, how much of that is actually actors? Is Jimmy really that bad? <laughs> I don't think any. I don't think any of it's an act. I uh, hung out no... with him WrestleMania weekend in New York. I'm telling you, the Jimmy that I hear on the podcast and the Jim is I him? get to spend some time with, it's 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 him. I mean, and it's kind of like you know they and they say that all great wrestling personalities really are just who they are, Turned cranked up, up to eleven. You know. <laughs> Uh, I, hell, I, I think Jim Cornette was born on about nine and three quarters. So, you know, he he doesn't have to t- touch the dial a lot. He goes from about nine and three quarters in real life to 11 for I'm wrestling also, personality. That's the best way I can put it for you, Tim. About the only person I can think of that I know he has even slight amount of fear of is his wife. Well, yeah. if you've ever had Stacey, <laughs> yeah, I don't you know why. He, I don't think he crossed that. I don't think he crossed Stacy in for anything. It doesn't hey, seem that way, but he, but he doesn't Stacey, seem that anybody else. Stacy, if you hear, hate. if you ever watched any of the old OVW shows, Stacy is one tough woman. I'm telling you, you ever watch? She is a tough well, woman. So I wouldn't cross her. Does, a wise man doesn't cross his wife anyway. That's just a foolish move to begin with. But absolutely. But, uh, you know, Steve, we don't want to take any more of your time. I know you're a busy man. you got things to do. But I really do appreciate you coming on here and uh, shooting the breeze with us about pro wrestling. And I'll tell you what, I want to get you back on within the next uh, month or two, if we can, because i got a buddy, you may know old uh, Bobby Blaze, from up in Ashland, Kentucky. Yes. And I would, and I would love yes. to hear you guys talk about oh, the old man. IWC and the <laughs> Oak Hill wrestling from the old days in West Virginia. I would love to hear some of those stories because I never got I never got I haven't had a chance to sit down and talk that I'm i I'm in Fayette County today on my way as a matter of fact. And uh I have and I tell you someone else you may want to have on uh, either in conjunction or at some other time. Delegate Shirley Love is about really? eighty years old and he is still sharp as a tack, he lo- he was the announcer for the big-time wrestling from Oak Hill, West Virginia, that wow. predated uh, the ICW, Poffos, uh, Angelos, yeah. and Randy's oh, promotion. <clears throat> and so, Shirley Love, it was just an absolute West Virginia wrestling staple. And he knows those guys, and he knew who they would bring in as big stars you know, kind of like what Gary does, you know, where where you yeah. have local or regional guys that, that fill out the biggest part of your card. And then for the draw, you'd bring in one or two national guys to beef up your card. Uh, and it aired Saturday nights live, Saturday nights from WOAY TV4 in Oak Hill, West Virginia. And it was a, it was a highly rated program. Everybody in the region that could get – W-O-A-Y yeah. on their rabbit ears or their antenna or whatever. They watched that wrestling. Yeah. 
I know my dad used to talk to me about it. He said that uh, there would be, of course, we all know the the Canadian hero Iron Mike Sharp would appear on there from from time to time. We have a satellite dish, or we had a satellite dish. It was one of those huge, huge satellite dishes that you would have to program and move to pick it up. And we actually still have a dish in my yard to this day. Uh, but yeah, that that would just be an interesting conversation, and I would love to hear more about ICW because I never got to see any ICW stuff. And if you have any kind of film or DVDs or anything of it, uh, let me know. I'd love to make a copy of some of the old ICW yeah, like, yeah. Uh, film collection. I, I, I need to I need to send you one of those. And also, I have an exciting announcement. Uh, it's about to go public in a couple days, of course. If you don't mind me sharing it, Nathan, I, I would love Absolutely. to. Uh, Absolutely. I have, become the na- I have become the name sponsor of the Jarrett Parsons Roku Wrestling Network on Roku. Oh, that's Roku. awesome. And they, yeah, they've got about 25 channels of classic wrestling streaming. Uh, you can get a Roku for about 35 40 bucks. And they are systematically putting uh, footage from all these different places, uh, Southwest Championship, Joe Blanchard's promotion that was shortly yeah. on the USA Network in the early 80s, ICW, you know, and uh, Rock Parsons has optioned the rights for uh, these territories. This stuff doesn't appear on the WWE Network because Vince doesn't have the rights to it. But what he doesn't have the rights to, Jerry Jarrett and uh, Rock Parsons are obtaining the rights to stream this on Roku. And I am their name sponsor, and I'm going to be doing some segments on there myself. And uh, you'll see my commercials air on there. But if you want to see some ICW wrestling before I get you some videos uh, that I have, uh, and I'm going to bring those down to you on June 29. Oh, uh, we can't wait. Videos uh, that that, that I have because it – it was great wrestling. Anything oh, that you have, uh, you, well, I guess you can, when you get together with Nate, you can uh, give us some links and pages and all that, and we'll uh, we'll plug you on our Twitter and on our page and all that and give you whatever we can give you from our end. Absolutely. I, I really appreciate that, fellas. Oh, you, you've yeah, been a great sponsor a, and a great, great to us, about, Steve, so it's the least yeah. we can do. Least we work we can on do. that. Uh, and, you tied us on the back. I, I'd love to come. That. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to come on with Bobby, or you know, make introductions to you with Shirley. Uh, it, it it would, uh, you know, you'd love talking uh, with oh. him, guys. I, I believe that you really would. Well, we oh, had, definitely. We had one other thing we wanted to ask you, but maybe we'll, if you've got two seconds, maybe we'll end the show, and we'll ask you that off the air, so that there's no, uh, just in case it's a subject you don't want to talk about. All right. Yeah. Very uh, well. Again, this is uh, Stephen P. New, New Law Office. He's a great sponsor of Wide Men Can't Jump, and he sponsors All-Star Wrestling. And as you're listening to this, the next All-Star Wrestling event is in Madison, West Virginia on June 29th, featuring all kinds of fantastic wrestling. We're going to crown a new ASW champion. There's going to be Jillian Hall will be in attendance in wrestling. Summer Ray will be the guest host. Uh, just going to be a great night of wrestling action. And we got some huge things coming your way. I know Steve is involved in bringing the Midnight Express to WrestleCade this year. I'm going to be there. I can't wait for that and so much more going on. And Steve is a great sponsor to now the Jarrett uh, Parsons uh, Network on Roku, All-Star Wrestling, as well as uh, Jim Cornette's drive Through, and now 
uh, wide men can't jump as we venture through the basketball and wrestling world ourselves. So, Steve, thank you again for coming on. But don't go anywhere. We got one more question for you off air. So, uh, thanks again, man. I Seriously, got you. anything so else for you want to on, guys? Anything Any else time. you want to plug? Go for it. If there's anything else to plug, you can go ahead. No, just uh, if anyone needs me, uh, you know, I'm specializing in a lot of different class actions right now, from Invacana to babies born addicted to drugs with neonatal abstinence syndrome, representing combat vets with uh, deficiently manufactured 3M combat earplugs. So go to newlawoffice.com or Facebook or Twitter, and uh, we'd be happy to help anybody that needs legal help. Awesome. Well, thanks again, ladies and gentlemen. That's Stephen P. New, our sponsor, our friend, and your friend as well. Make sure you check him out if you need it, newlawoffice.com. And that was our sponsor and wrestling wrestling historian. Let's just say it what it is. Wrestling savant, full of knowledge, Stephen P. New, who talked a little bit about what AEW is and what we think of the current wrestling product and wrestling uh, in the future. So wrestling tomorrow. So we've we covered warned. wrestling yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We warned you, Stephen P. New, don't mess with this guy. Absolutely not. Knows his stuff, and if he doesn't, he'll probably find out and come back and roast you. So yes, he will. That's probably not a good. uh, You just go. I I found it's just easier to go. Yes, Mister (laughs) New. Mind you, I agree with him nine times out of ten. Anyway, because he kind of sees the wrestling world pretty much the way I do, because we're roughly the same age. So yeah. But, yeah, so that's been the show here. This has been Wrestling Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Uh, a little look at something that Tim and I may be doing a little bit more of, but maybe on a smaller scale. Um, we'll get more into that as the weeks come about. But this has been a little bit of a preview of, of some of the stuff that we can offer, some of the names we can bring in in the pro wrestling world, and some of the stories you can hear on the Wide Men Radio Network. And, uh, again, the Wide Men Radio Network, we are brought to you by the law offices of Stephen P. New, uh, Cambay.com, Atomic Comics and Collectibles, LLC, and Stay Classy Meats. Use promo code WIDEMEN and save 10% on your purchase at StayClassyMeats.com. But we do want to thank all of our guests, Les Thatcher, Carrie Silken, Stephen P. New, and Tim, thank you for jumping on here and uh, doing this little wrestling special with me. And uh, it was fun, and we'll be putting more stuff like this together as uh, days go by. I am yesterday. Yes, you are. Yesterday, all your troubles seemed so far away, did they not? You are today. Tom (laughs) Robinson is the future. (laughs) Yes, he is. I will agree with that. But would would it be a wrestling show without something like this? There's Diana looking like some kind of whore. (laughs) All right. You're going to get me to pop for Stu Hart every time. so I can't help it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for checking in on this episode on Wide Men Can't Jump. We hope you enjoyed it. Everybody have a good night. Hey, UWF, why don't you take us out of here? <laughs>